You're listening to episode 101 of the Comics Pals. We're a group of comic book journalists and friends who record a podcast together because we don't talk enough about comics in our daily lives. Guys, I know we don't really talk about bookkeeping stuff on the air, but I want our listeners to know that I won't be on next week's episode for you see... I have to trek all the way up to New York Comic Con to explore a new conspiracy. <laughs> I'm hearing CM Punk will be there, and I have it on good authority that he's trying to recruit people into a straight-edge society. This merits further investigation, and that's why your ace reporter, Phil Casey, is hitting the scene. So sorry, guys. People deserve to know the truth. So I'm not going to be here. I mean, that means the rest of us are going to have to go with you, too, I guess, right? We're your producing squad. Who else is going to record you? That's right. Who else? Make is sure gonna... you stay hydrated. That's right. <laughs> I get hot and bothered real easy and real quick. Let's also acknowledge I have a personal relationship with CM Punk. Oh, that's right. There's a photo. There's photographic evidence, listeners. Yeah. And he needs to know he's the greatest comic book writer of all time. Well, I don't know about that, but with us today is a man who may one day be the greatest comic book writer of all time uh, because we do have a very special guest joining us today, uh, writer, artist, and the curator of the upcoming Death of the Horror Anthology, which is coming really soon, actually the Kickstarter. If you're listening to this on the day that it drops, October 1st, you can go to that Kickstarter right now. Kelly Brack is here with us today. Woo! Welcome. Oh, do I do I say something now? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> just just read the cue cards we gave you. Ah, I would have to know how to read, but I can read Tinder. Like the never mind, never mind. Okay, oh. last Tinder reference. Um, hi, like thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for joining us. Um, it's always nice to have a guest with us on the show, and as always, um, we just we, we you know we were interested. We want to know. What you're up to. So what can you tell us about the Death of the Horror Anthology? Give us that elevator pitch. Elevator pitch would just be it's it's a bunch of super, super talented creators. Um, a lot are um, pretty well known. And then you have a, a good mix of up and coming creators that are uh, just getting their foot in the door. So it's an interesting blend of established and non-established creators. And uh, we have a theme of inner demons. Um about 15, 16 short stories compiled uh, within this anthology, and we're going to be published by Wave Blue World, uh, which is very exciting for us. And yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty much how an elevator pitch it, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. It's yeah, it's it's been an interesting journey so far because we we actually have been going at this project for a while. So we noticed that. Ryan Katie's on this list, uh, just one of the many, many talented people. He's someone we've actually had on the show. Really good guy. Um, definitely some some heavy hitters on this on this uh, list. Um, so of course you're there. Uh, we've also got Vita Ayala, uh, Stephanie Cannon, uh, Greg Jermack, um, Jed McPherson. The list goes on and on. So we'll definitely be having. We'll have a list for. We'll have a a link rather. For people to go and check the Kickstarter out once it drops. Uh, I, I do want to hear the story, though. Now you've got me intrigued of how this all sort of came together. Uh, it's, it's not an interesting one. Like, it's interesting <laughs> oh. to me. Because <laughs> I, I think everything uh, is interesting. So it's not hard to, to peak, um, peak my enthusiasm. You especially. Oh, thank you. <laughs> 
Yes. So yeah, I was, My I gratitude. was uh, sitting at home and I, I was perhaps a few beers too many in. Hell yeah. <laughs> yes. And I was, uh, there's a friend of mine, he, he's a part of the anthology. His name is John Ward. And uh, we were on the phone or something. I, I can't remember how this came about, but he was saying, no, I was trying to compile a bunch of short stories for, I, I think just um, maybe a portfolio for myself. So I was trying to find artists to work with me um, to do that. But then uh, my, my mind doesn't know when to stop. So I was just like, well, what if it was just an anthology with a bunch of other creators? Because I was seeing uh, a way the world had this Nightmare Kills Fascist anthology um, on Kickstarter at that particular time. So I took notice to that and I, I wanted to do something similar. So I just started uh, cold messaging everybody. <laughs> like just DMing, uh, emailing, and just saying very little information. Just hey, you want to maybe do this thing with me? And but uh, yeah, like I, I just started saying, would you like to do this project with me? And everybody was pretty receptive. And then we we established our theme, uh, the structure of how the stories were going to be. Uh, we got hooked up with an amazing editor named Danny Lore, who um, edited. The Wilds for Vita Ayala and Emily Pearson uh, for their Black Mask book. And yeah, it was, it was just, it kind of came about like that. It's, it's not interesting at all. Beer was heavily involved. Kelly, how did you go from being having people be receptive to being hated? You, therapy, let's do it. <laughs> okay, so it's still, it's still on the fringes of receptive. So I'll say that, but I'm trying to be meaner to people. Like, I, I really want to, people are throwing that Canadian stereotype at me, starting to get a little ticked off. <laughs> so, so yeah, I like to, I like to throw the insults. I have also made a very conscious decision not to put LOL or haha at the end of my tweets anymore. I do not want people to know if I'm joking. Okay. So how friendly are you with Ryan Katie? Well, I, I love Ryan. I, I don't even think I could possibly be mean to Ryan. <laughs> well, we're going to test that right now. See, Phil and I are big fans of of wrestling. And uh, in wrestling, there's a concept called cutting a promo. And so what I would love for you to do right now is say the oh most mean thing you can think of saying about Ryan Katie and cut a promo on him. He'll definitely 100% of course hear this. So give it your best shot. <laughs> You're on the spot. Let's hear it. No, I this am. This is your chance to shed the nice guy Canadian stereotype. Yeah. Listen, we have a Canadian guy on this show every once in a while, and he's the nicest guy in the world. It's definitely a stereotype. This is your chance to prove to everyone that not all Canadians are that nice. W wouldn't it be amazing if I just didn't listen to a word you said? <laughs> <laughs> are you being mean to me? Is that what this is? I was trying. <laughs> Ah, We're damn. not. You're not cutting a promo on me. You're right. cutting a promo on okay. Ryan. Come okay. on. Okay. So okay. So little. Let's let's try to figure out what the bad thing about Ryan could be because he's very attractive. Already a bad start. He's, no. 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 But you have to, you have to think about the the things that are good <laughs> to to find the, the bad things. So he's he's attractive. Attractive. Funny. Yeah. Good writer. Oh my, good listener. Yes. No, yes. you're not helping. Go on. <laughs> I'm not cutting a promo. Oh, okay. 
So okay, well, I mean, I guess there was that one time where he doesn't he doesn't tweet back at me as quickly as I might like. So if I you know, his his uh, what would you call it? His dexterity, uh, <laughs> his fingers are probably not the best. That's that's that might be a very bad thing wherever he lives. Do you know where he lives? This promo sucks. <laughs> no, Ryan, if, Ryan, if you're listening, is this you what heard Canadian it, wrestling is like? You guys, <laughs> you heard it here first. Your dexterity is trash. Like I say that confidently because this is a this is a promo. I he yeah he maybe maybe he's putting on a facade. Maybe everything you know about him is he's fake. There you go. Oh, wow. (laughs) My man Kelly scooped up some mud and slung it. Uh, (laughs) Now, can can I end the promo by saying I love Ryan? (laughs) Uh, No. (laughs) This uh, isn't a tag team. All right. You just you're just even lovable again, man. I think I think now I'm just I'm back to thinking you're a nice Canadian. Yeah, I know. I hate it. I hate it so much. I would I would say this was ineffective. I appreciate your hospitality. Every, okay, both of those things I've I've heard at the end of a date once or twice. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you want to hear at the end of a date. Yes. I appreciate your hospitality. Yeah. <laughs> Did you get a second date after that? Well, of course, my hospitality was appreciated. See, to me, that sounds like something I would say to a date that I did not want to see again. Well, um, your uh, hospitality is very good, I guess. No, see, I feel like that sounds like boyfriend material. It's like this: you go over to this guy's house, he's got a nice blanket, he's got, you know, he makes a cup of tea for you or something. It sounds pretty good. Kelly, I can tell we're getting along real well. Guys, uh, Kale's not here this week. We auditioned Kelly to be our new regular fifth. Yeah, Kelly, are you looking for work? Do you want to? You want to be on a podcast every week? Do you want to wake up at eight in the morning every single week to record a show? <laughs> Listen, the person who normally is the fifth chair—we're really tired of him. Um, last week, he said something that I said was disingenuous bullshit. And as the host, I really don't appreciate that. So we have shirts, right? And I'm actually about to uh, cut his head out of my shirt. For when we go to New York Comic Con, and in fact, I would love to replace his head with yours. Awesome. Okay. Oh, so it's it's going to be like a. Oh, I I I got gotcha. you. I now, got you. For listeners at home who are not watching the YouTube version, <laughs> we see Kelly as a white wall right now, and so yes. when we Photoshop him into our shirts, it's just going to be a white wall. <laughs> Which is yeah, you know. Which is great because the shirt's white, so perfect. So where where's your interest? Where's your interest in horror come from? Where's that background? Um, does it come from being in the gutter or what's up? Can we date back to like when I was six and I was living, I was living in rural Vancouver and no, my, uh, my friend came over and, uh, he was a few years older than me. Uh, and he wanted to watch Halloween. So we were watching the movie and then it's, it's like two in the morning or something. And we lived next to a school field and, uh, there was a scream that didn't line up with the actual film. <laughs> so we paused it and we heard it. We heard another scream, so we ran to the kitchen window, and then we were looking out to the school field, and yeah, there's there's somebody in the distance, like way across the field, hanging chain link fence from their gut. So what it looked like was they were like trying to balance, and then they lost their balance, and then just like fell on their gut or something. You saw someone disembowel. When you say it like that, it's awfully dramatic. But you said by their guts. Was... <laughs> you said by their guts. The way you said it, it sounds pretty dramatic. Fair point. But 
<laughs> it looked. I guess I guess you're just that gifted of a storyteller. <laughs> I am not. Everything that I might have done so far has either been luck or um, yeah, lots of alcohol, which helps. People should. I, side note: If you're trying to do anything creative, you should be wildly drunk. Yeah, the Grant Morrison approach. <laughs> I, I, I get it. You want to be fucked up. Grant Morrison. I got it. No side notes. Was this person dead? <laughs> uh, thank you for swearing, though. So I'm allowed to swear, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. You're allowed to swear. Uh, so, yeah, I got I got super excited on another podcast where I this, the moment um, somebody swore, I just like lost my mind. I just started swearing uncontrollably. So I won't do that. Easy, sailor. Well, I'm, I'm going to hold back. <laughs> wait, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. You didn't come on the Comics Pals to hold back. We want Kelly Brack Unleashed. You gave us a promo on Ryan Katie that was pretty bad, okay? And now <laughs> yeah. you're telling me that you're going to hold back. That is not why you came on this show. Okay. I'm so sorry. I still don't know if this guy's dead, <laughs> Kelly! Now I feel bad. <laughs> Jeez. Why are you apologizing? You said you want to shed the bad or the nice guy image. You gotta act like a bad boy. I'm pushing you oh. right now. Push back. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't like you. I don't know. <laughs> Listen, you didn't have to be brutally honest. <laughs> In fairness, I do. I do like you. You don't have to lie! Ah, oh, fuck. Is the oh, guy? That's my first swear. Is the guy dead? There we go. Uh, yes. No. No. The, the guy from the fence. He... What are you talking about? Yes. Yeah. I wonder if the guy in the fence was dead. No. Maybe. But what happened uh, was. Maybe. He was. Uh, yeah. He was hanging from his stomach from the fence, and there was a guy. I like to refer to him as shadowy fig- figure. So he was looking at the person hanging from the fence and he wasn't attempting to help at all. So that was raising some questions, but then we heard an ambulance coming and we're like, Oh, okay, dude called the ambulance. And now they're getting some help. So the ambulance helped the person down from the fence, uh, put them in the back and went, but the shadowy figure got into a station wagon, which is alarming. And then you turned and that was it. But then we saw headlights coming through our uh, cul-de-sac area where I lived. And at 2 in the morning in the area we were living at, the station wagon pulled all the way around the cul-de-sac, parked right in the parking spot like where, where we lived. And then he got out of the car. And then this is where it gets weird. This Wait, is where, this it, is gets where it gets weird? It's not already weird? But it gets weirder. So then he gets out of the car and he looks over the fence to the the um, other cul-de-sac that we live next to. And then he goes, uh, opens the trunk, puts on white surgical gloves, and then he gets a metal briefcase. And then uh, he walks out of sight. So we can't see him anymore because we're like frantically running around the house to see um, the area where he's going. So we're like window to window trying to keep up with him. But he got out of sight. And then he came back like 15 seconds later, no briefcase. And I'm just like, oh, this this whole fucking complex is going to blow up in a minute. <laughs> Listen, now you're just describing Marco's bedroom life. Come on. Oh, oh man. Surgical gloves, briefcase. I know. That, Come on. Can, in all fairness, if, if my bedroom life right now 
involve those two things, I would not be deterred. I would, I would be so interested in what was going to happen. And I, I have a feeling that it would suck at some point. But I think I'm at a point in my life where I would, I would I mean, you should hope so. to begin with. I'd be like, this is new and I want this. <laughs> yeah. I'm open to the experience. Well, let's, can, I, can I ask you guys a personal question now? If, if somebody were to walk up to you with surgical gloves in a briefcase and they just, well, I don't want to make this overly sexual, but let's just say they wanted you in a sexual sense. Would you not go with that person with the briefcase? I know Marco would just say, oh, it's another Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like every uh, Tinder interaction that Marco's ever had. Apparently, so. yeah. There you go, repping <laughs> Tinder, and uh, it's a it's a casual Wednesday, Phil, not a Tuesday. Sorry. So that's casual for you, Marco? <laughs> <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Do you not just bump into people like that? No. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to answer the question... Uh, what would I do? Uh, I would head for the hills because uh, I have seen a lot of horror movies and I know that the black guy always dies first. <laughs> so that's where my mind goes. So I'm actually getting the hell away from that situation. Yeah, uh, no, uh, that's that's my first thought every time I watch a horror movie is whenever there's that moment. I'm just like, see, right here, this moment right now, this is where I leave. I get in the car and leave the spooky cabin. I'm getting the fuck out of here. Like, no. <laughs> yeah, the story you told me, Kelly, sounds like rural ass Vancouver. <laughs> <laughs> well, wait, why do you say it like that? Rural ass Vancouver. Why does it sound like rural ass Vancouver? Have you heard rural Vancouver stories before? You tell me how many rural Vancouver stories you've heard. I, first of all, did you just cut a promo on me? That was a lot better than the one you cut on Ryan. Well, I didn't. I didn't say brother afterwards, did I? <laughs> Wait, could you? I kind of no, wish you did. I don't. I. I'm not cool enough to to end any sentence with brother or anything. I just started recently saying dude. <laughs> so that doesn't. That's a big moment. It yeah, it was a big moment, <laughs> and I, I don't think that the old lady behind the counter was too <laughs> fucking pleased about it. <laughs> it just came out though; I couldn't, I couldn't help it. <laughs> uh, to answer so, your question, I don't know a lot of rural British Columbia stories. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, it's cool. I just I had to I had to call you out on it. Oh, I understand. We're rivals immediately. I got it. I think. I think what I just learned from that interaction, Kelly, is that your next anthology should be about rural Vancouver stories. Because I, th- I well, think there's a market for it. What yes. I was going to ask was the story that you just told us, is that actually in the anthology series? Is that in Death of the Horror anthology? Oh, no. It, I, I, would, I would fucking love to, to write that. Just two uh, kids that will never grow up to have sex. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, huh. Yeah. Based like on a true the, story, huh? It, it was shit. <laughs> so yeah. I think I think we just figured out why Kelly would be so eager to go off with the stranger. <laughs> y- yeah. Like, it it really wouldn't take much for me. I mean, and, and think, think of for like Marco for wearing a Tinder shirt, because even that would be arousing to me on the street. I'd be like... Man, I wonder what would happen if I just went up to him and dragged my finger all the way across to the right across his chest. 
I definitely think our listeners are shipping Marco and Kelly now. It, it's got to happen. So you don't look too happy with me, Marco. <laughs> no, no. I'm yeah. I'm enjoying the experience right now. I'm looking forward to what's happening next. Um, has, has anybody ever done huh. that to you, by the way? Has anybody ever just come and tried to totally right swipe it? Uh, unfortunately not. There's a, there's a first time for everything, Kelly. There is. I would, I would uh, just throw a blue star at you. If that makes any sense, is not like a Tinder thing. That's a super like, Marco. That's a super like. Yeah, is it? <laughs> is yeah. it? Like, how much is Tinder paying? You're a bad for spokesperson this, for this free advertising. Because <laughs> you suck at advertising. Is it? <laughs> for, for listeners at home, Marco is wearing a Tinder shirt. I am wearing Tinder. a Tinder shirt. Honestly, it's just comfy. It's a nice cotton. Hey, Kelly, have you been following the news lately about uh, the Philadelphia Flyers getting a new horror-oriented mascot named Gritty? Oh my god, is that a thing? Yeah, it's really it's really scary. Um, I think I think it could be the muse for another horror story of yours. Gritty? Have they released images of, of this? Oh yeah, there's yeah, videos. Look, take everything. a look at this guy. I actually haven't seen this either, so... Oh, it's horrifying. It's like a giant... It's like, it's like Donald Trump had a baby with a Philly fanatic and dipped it in cheddar Cheetos. Wait, wait, what? <laughs> I'm telling you the story, my man. Look up, look up a picture of this guy right now. Just get a look at him. He's what nightmare the? fuel. <laughs> what? Just up in flyers, gritty. It, I, I just saw it and it's it's pretty disturbing, actually. Uh, <laughs> it's googly I eyes too. It like they move oh, all over that's the place. Uncomfortable. Yeah, uh, I have a lot of problems with that. But, uh, Kelly, so maybe we can dive into comics just a little bit. <laughs> oh, yes, please. <laughs> right. Um, how did you get into comics to begin with? Like, well, I've always, I've always been a fan. Uh, so I gravitated to comic books as a kid just because, uh, like, kind of grew up with very little money. And it was, it was cheap for, you know, like, comic books aren't, aren't like, action figure prices or anything. So, so uh my, my first book was uh, Peter Parker, Spider-Man number 98, which was the tail end of a uh, four-part story. So I had no idea what was going on. I'm, just like, I'm like, why is Spider-Man doing this shit? But it was it was cool. And then um, carried on um, to my adult life where I wanted to, um, I, I guess you kind of get to a point where you want to stop reading or indulging in somebody else's creativity. And then you want to just do your own thing, right? So, so I reached that point and... Uh, yeah, I was, um, I don't really speak about this very often. I, I don't think I've ever spoken about this ever, so I won't go into super detail about it, but I got sick for a little bit. And, um, when you go through like any kind of, uh, serious health issue, uh, you start to really think about what would make you happy and stuff. So, so I was just like, oh man, like, and you want like a, a an area where your, um, your energy is being focused on something good. Right. So I've always had an artistic ability and I always wanted to write. So when that particular moment in my life happened, I just decided to channel all my energy to comics. And then I never looked back. So I'd, I'd probably say that was the biggest factor in me wanting to be a creator. I needed to go through a health scare. <laughs> Sounds so bad. Other people are like, we love it. And I'm like, I was I was close to death. <laughs> that's why I wanted to. No, I think, I think that's really inspiring. Oh, man. really? Oh, man. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's beautiful. Um, I think that's really, really a cool story for why you, uh, dedicated yourself to your craft. 
Oh, cool. Okay. Well, uh, thank you. I, what I learned from that story there is that if I want to get my shit together and start, you know, uh, putting out my stuff, all I have to do is nearly Eat some die. Cheese. Eat some cheese. Yeah, well, <laughs> that, that'll do it. Uh, you know, fall down the stairs, uh, get hit by a train. Lots of ways I could die or nearly die. Yeah, go up to Henrik Sedin or Daniel Sedin and say, hey, I don't think you're very good at hockey, eh? <laughs> wait, wait, what? But who would ever say that? <laughs> they, they were professional hockey players. They were pretty good hey, at listen, hockey. Hey, listen, that... <laughs> I like how your premise is, hey, don't be mean to them. They're good at hockey. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's true, though. They were pretty, pretty decent. They were adequate. They... Very hospitable. <laughs> <laughs> They're probably Hall of Famers, my man. They will be. 100%. So what are some of the stories that you grew up reading that you think inspired you to get started in, in comics? Uh, like all the, oh God, all the typical ones. So like, I'm, I'm not going to be uh, that guy that says like a bunch of different obscure books. Yeah, and stuff in that range. I'm a big Batman fan. And then um, uh, more more so like into my adult life, it gravitated towards anything Alan Moore. So nice. like V for Vendetta, Watchmen. Um, my favorite, my all-time favorite comic book run ever is Swamp Thing. Hell yeah! Are you kidding me? Oh no! I literally just fucking saw Marco cross his fingers. He was waiting for it. Say it. No! Oh my god! I've been given life. No, no. Wait, what What happened? Am I dying Well, everyone, this was Kelly Brack on our podcast. She did a great job. Uh, unfortunately, he has to leave now for uh, unforeseen circumstances. But uh, thanks for being on the show. Get it removed. <laughs> yeah, that means yeah, removing Marco. That's what we're trying to do. We've been trying to fucking remove Marco for 101 <laughs> episodes. And then here you come along saying you're a fan of Swamp Thing. The Hell first yeah. guest to shout that do, do, character do, do, do. out. And now you think you think that this is ever going to end now? Wait. <laughs> All right. Let Marco have his moment in the sun, everybody. Uh, that was it. <laughs> So what? What's the problem with with Marco? Just because he likes Swamp Thing? Marco has yeah. an unhealthy obsession with Swamp Thing. Some it's might call unhealthy. him a swamposexual, and that Whoa. wouldn't be far from the truth. I I get it on with tubers. Oh yep, yeah. That that's been a pickup line of mine. I've thrown a potato <laughs> in a group of girls. And I'm like, <laughs> There's the soundbite of the episode. Yeah, so Marco knows what I'm saying. Yeah. Marco would be the person to pick up that tuber. No, <laughs> I, I've, I don't know that reference at all, but the, the the imagery of you being at a bar and just tossing a potato at a group of women. A potato's a tuber. <laughs> this decommissioned train is already so far off the rails that I just want to hit you with one last question, if that's cool, with everyone else. So um, I like to ask our guests questions that come up from Yahoo Answers to help anonymous people on there. So I was wondering if you could help this anonymous user. There's no name on here. Oh, there is. bmx for life That's the name of this user. Dude, that's me. <laughs> oh, well, maybe you already got the answer then. Maybe someone already helped you. The question is, is there a spell to become a mermaid that actually works? Is it, isn't it just ecstasy? <laughs> oh, okay. Can you tell me? <laughs> Uh, uh, Kelly, can you explain that experience to me? Well, I've personally never done it, but it's, um, 
I've seen somebody. Um, oh God, I didn't think I was gonna tell this story ever. I've seen somebody take ecstasy, <laughs> and they became a mermaid. Hey, hey, let him tell it. I'm sorry. It was a. Uh, it was. It was by the by the docks. <laughs> And what happened was they jumped in the water and for a split second, no, I guess for, for quite a while, the lower half of their body was underwater. I didn't see the lower half of their body. I'd like to imagine maybe I was on ecstasy. I don't know. <laughs> I, maybe they were just swimming. Maybe I was at the beach. <laughs> you know what? I've taken too many drugs. <laughs> I have no idea. I don't do ecstasy and is this a public public service announcement? I've never done drugs, by the way. Just in case anybody is listening, you. Have... I, I don't but believe that. At but you all. have to drink a lot of alcohol to to be creative. That was what you told us earlier. And nearly die. And nearly die. And nearly die. That one was was uh, not to do with anything other than I. Th- I think it was. What was that? Oh God, that just sucks. But. So I, I feel like I feel like the takeaway here is that art is at the cross section of near death experiences and alcoholism. Beautifully put. Yes. I um I just want to say that we've been we've been talking and I really don't know anything. Um, I haven't learned anything, and I I mean I've learned things I never wanted to know, but. <laughs> I feel like I haven't learned anything I wanted to know. Uh, I, I do want to ask you, Kelly, um, where can people find you <laughs> on the internet if for some reason after this they want to know more about you or what you do or anything? Yeah, I guess uh, re- regarding the anthology, uh, Brian Edward Hill is doing the foreword for the book. Whoa. Yes. Oh, we are such big fans of his on this podcast. That's fantastic. Yeah, I know. Uh, last year we we tried it, right? And um, I guess due to like timing circumstances, um, certain things that uh, weren't really prepared for, uh, that the book kind of got um, sidetracked, and we had to go at it again. And and then uh, Brian was a part of it then, because I, I reached out to Brian and I said, "Hey, man." <laughs> do you want to do this? <laughs> and he was super, super sweet about it. And he's like, yeah, of course. So I forget who he was going to do a story with, but he was part of it. And then in our, um, uh, going back to, to do the anthology again, he couldn't write a story for it because like, he's now one of the biggest <laughs> comic writers on the, the planet at the moment. He seems to be doing every other thing. And no, but um, he said that he would love to go forward, my forward. So that was cool. So he'll, he'll be a part of it in some ways. Well, so that's very exciting. So, speaking about the anthology a little more, just can 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 you speak to some of? You don't have to tell us details about the stories at all, but I guess I'm I want you to sell the book uh, at this point. Like tell tell us uh, what we can expect from it. Why should people invest in this? What's what's really awesome about it? The well, the theme is inner demons, so it's because it's so subjective. Um, yeah, you're not. Uh, you don't have to, to be married to a certain idea. Like you, you could take that, um, that theme and go any direction you want. So all the stories are 100% different from the last. So you guys know Brian Level. He's the artist on Thanos right now with uh, Don Cates. Oh, yeah, yeah, so sure. He, <laughs> he's, um, 
he has a story in it and I, I think it's the most fucked up story I've ever read in my life. So <laughs> just saying that alone kind of sells it a bit. <laughs> but the all the stories are, are already on the go. Like we're trying to get a head start so that there's no delays for backers. So the book is actually going to be released um, like around March. Um, oh wow! Yeah, so so we've we've been working like really hard, and AWBW like a wave blue world has been like a dream to work with. But but yeah, it's like I'm trying not to spoil um, the actual stories. I know like for for my story, I'm working with artist Chris Sheehan and. D kind of did the the art, no, the the colors for us, and Micah Myers uh, lettered our story, and and it's more so of uh, like we took a, a metaphorical approach to it, trying to um, find a relatable, um, I don't know, like you, you know, some some stories will be like very gory and very in your face, like stab, um, whatever. I, I insert adjective. So our yeah our story was uh, inspired by Alan Moore's Swamp Thing, so I'm very curious. Maybe I'll send it to you and see what what you think. Yeah, please do. Yeah, I appreciate so, that. Yeah, no, it's I I can't spoil like individual stories unfortunately, but but yeah, like that we've been working hard on it and everybody's super passionate about it. So hopefully we'll have uh, have some support during our campaign. Yeah, it, it's it actually sounds really interesting. Um, I I love the idea that you guys have presented of sort of like taking the concept of of inner demons and spinning that on its head and kind of letting the writers and the artists determine what that means to them. Because I think, like you said, there's so many different ways you could go with that. So that's something that I would I would definitely love to pick up. I, I hope so. Like I, I know when when we were all kind of discussing the direction we wanted to go with the book, um, it was very important. Uh, I won't I won't speak out of school here just because I don't want to speak for other people. I know for me personally, it's it's very important as the creator to to have that creative freedom. So when when you do have a very wide range concept or theme uh, that is supposed to be connecting all the other stories, you yeah you want creator to have like th- this playground to work with where they just really do their own thing. And um, it shines and really shows through the stories. Like even with the art, like I've, I touch base with the creators and some of the artists that are, are currently drawing the stories are really having a blast doing it. <laughs> so that's, and especially in the state of comics right now with all the, the shit that's happening and the negativity that's uh, being spread around, it's it's really enlightening and and a very welcoming distraction to do a project that everybody is passionate about and having fun with. Cause that's what comics should be, right? Like it should be, it should be fun and it should be something that bonds everybody um, together and like creators and readers. And I, I do think that we're going to have a very interactive campaign with anybody that wants to support us. And we're, we're trying to get everybody involved and, and yeah, I, I don't know. Like it's, I guess, end of sentence for that one. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, um, we're definitely going to do our part in making sure that people are aware of this. Uh, I encourage anyone who's interested in horror or just kind of wants to read comics made by a really, really awesome list of creators to go check this out. Uh, As we said, it drops the same day as this episode, so you can go straight from listening to this to the link that we'll have to the Kickstarter page. 
uh, and definitely check that out. Death of the Horror Anthology. Uh, it really is an awesome list of creators. At this point, you probably know at least one of the people that's on this list, so um, you can donate, or not donate, but you know, put money towards this Kickstarter uh, just to see what that creator has to contribute to this. Um, so, real quick, before, before we wrap up, uh, normally we, you know, we do Pals Pulls, and, uh, Pals Pulls is just a segment where we kind of talk about the books that we're looking forward to this upcoming week, but since you're the guest, Kelly, uh, we'd love to know what you're reading lately, what books are on your to-read pile, what are you getting through, what, what are, what are you buying? Uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sure it's the, the same deal with, with other creators, but my, my to-read pile is constantly growing. Unfortunately, I just it's it's really hard to, to keep up with everything while you're trying to trying to create on your own. But um, right now, I'm I'm reading her Infernal Descent, um, that by Aftershock Comics. Lonnie Nadler, Zach Thompson. Um, Lonnie Nadler is a part of the anthology. Um, the pair of them wrote the dregs for Black Mask a while ago, so it's very yeah. I was looking forward to that and. Um, so that's been amazing. Um, again, they wrote another book called uh, Come Into Me. So love that one as well. Uh, what else? There's there's a lot more. Like I'm really digging the wilds. Mm. Um, Emily Pearson's one of my best friends. And all my interactions with Vita have just been amazing. I love them both. So uh, it's it's great that they're, they're putting out a, a very... Um, I don't know, significant book. Like it's, it's such a great book. I love that book. What else? There's more, there's more that I'm reading. I don't want to like leave it out. Oh man. But, but yeah, like those, those books come to mind right now. Oh, oh, that one, Shanghai Red by uh, Chris Abula and Josh Hickson. I love that one. So yeah, that's, that's what I'm currently reading. Yes. Oh, nice. We are big, big fans of that book on this podcast, and fans of Sabella. And uh, a few times. and Kelly, that book that Emily's writing—that's um, Snap Flash Hustle, right? Oh yeah, she's uh, she's uh, collaborating with um, Pat Shand on that one. Okay, okay, cool. I think we might uh, we might be talking to them when that book starts to come out uh, around November. Oh, you should, and you should, uh, you should, one hundred percent not be afraid to attack um emily on all fronts <laughs> um, oh jeez well you we'll tell her you said emily? that yeah do that yeah no she's she puts on a mask whoa so let's jeez yeah she she has the whole sweet and innocent thing going on and she thinks it's gonna work for her for for a long time but i see right through that shit so i you should you should absolutely call her out immediately and see how she handles that gem. Shots fired. We're gonna actually tag her on Twitter in this. <laughs> she's gonna see this, hear this, and then she's gonna come at you. We're gonna have her on the show. She's gonna cut a promo on you. Oh my god. Well, that would be adorable. <laughs> she, I, Whoa! Emily trying to insult me is my favorite thing like you know like the motivational quotes that like get people all cheery and everything um yeah her trying to to insult me or do a comeback to one of my insults 
is terrific. I welcome it. Tag her. I would love to see what she says. Oh, I like this. Uh-oh. Yeah. All right. I like All it. Honestly, she, I, I do love her to death, but at the same time. You, you just keep undercutting your promos right at the end, man. You're just like, yeah, yeah, forget this person. They're fake. They're a lot. Oh, but I love them. They're great. I love them. They're sweet. Uh, They're very I, hospitable. I oh, sorry. Go, no, go for it. No, no, I was just, I was going to continue the, the, the train or the, <laughs> but it's, it's not going to help anybody. Definitely not going to help my friend with Emily. So <laughs> <laughs> it's over now. I mean, we got the audio. That's uh, honestly what we're known for tearing friendships apart. We do that every single week here on the comics pals. Um, it's just a part of our brand and uh, you know, hopefully that when Emily does hear this, uh, she get, leaves you a very angry voicemail and you can then come back on the show and, and, and yell at us in your very uh, Canadian way for destroying your friendship with a dear, dear friend. Um, so we're actually going we're gonna, to we're gonna wrap up here. Uh, but again, Kelly, thank you so, so much for joining us. It's been a, a, a weird kind of pleasure. Like, <laughs> not... Again, flashbacks. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. Like... Not quite the kind of pleasure where I'm, like, really excited to do it again, but the kind of pleasure where if it was 2 a.m. and, you know, I had enough drinks in me, maybe I would be <laughs> mad if we did it again, you know? Yeah, so I'm trying to remember the name of the person that said <laughs> <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> oh no! Oh, before before you get arrested, um, <laughs> why don't you just tell us once again where we can find your Kickstarter and you all over the internet? Uh, Twitter, Noir Comics, Instagram, Brack Comics, uh, Facebook. My name, I certainly hope. And I'm, I'm more so active on Twitter, but we're we're going to be um uh, going pretty pretty heavy with the campaign, 30 day campaign for the Kickstarter. So um, I I really encourage everybody to um, away Blue World on online at AWBW. But yeah, we're we're all going to be promoting it pretty heavy, and um, just really hope to have everybody's support during that during that 30 day period. Awesome. Uh, and like I said, we're going to do what we can to help support the book because uh, up and coming creators. Working on something that seems like it's going to be a really good addition to comics is what we're here for. So, uh, again, thank you so much for joining us, Kelly. We had a blast with you, and uh, we'll have to do it again sometime. Oh, well, like, thank you guys. Seriously, like, this, this was fun. I was worried I was going to be too sleep deprived. I'm like, oh man, it's going to be horrible. It's going to be sad. See ya. Take care. All right, guys. Uh, that was a really good interview, but frankly, all that Swamp Thing, com- like, all that Swamp Thing talk kind of makes me want to leave. <laughs> So, I'm out of here, and I'm never coming back. Wait, how come you get to leave? I want to leave. Yeah, the door can only fit one of us. <laughs> Good riddance, Phil, and your Swamp Thing hating self. Guys, did that turd just talk? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Tinder uh, turd. Bye, Phil. Oh, uh, my God. It's not been fun. <laughs> and uh, I'll never see you again. That's right. Never <laughs> get out of here. Can't you see nobody wants you? <laughs> Yeah, maybe that guy can replace Kale. Bye! Alright, so uh, we're going to jump into the news. Uh, now we'll that s- Phil's gone and we can have a serious discussion. Seriously. Uh, so, we're starting with a movie called 
X-Men The Last Stand. Oh, whoops. I mean Dark Phoenix. Um, <laughs> that's, that's why we had to get rid of Phil. I can't talk to him with X, about X-Men movies with Phil around. <laughs> so uh, the Dark Phoenix trailer was released uh, a few days ago. And uh, it's not called X-Men Dark Phoenix. So, you know, get it right. Um, what did you guys think about this? Uh, there, there wasn't a lot. It it was kind of like visuals and a general sort of sense of, okay, something is going on with Jean and she's, we got to help her, but nothing more outside of that. And I mean, we all kind of know the story, but uh, it's going to be interesting to see how they pull this off when compared to Last Stand. Yeah, it was interesting for me because I didn't, I didn't really have a strong reaction to it. I thought it looked really good, um, which is good because I didn't really feel that way about the last two X-Men outings. Um, It's been a while since one of them, um, like, what was the last one? Not Apocalypse. uh, Apocalypse. Apocalypse visually just had a weird look to me. Like, I remember even when the trailers came out, it was a little bit like, "Mm, I don't, I don't know, you know, like it, it, it didn't. It didn't look bad, but it didn't necessarily look on the level that I would expect. And there was a lot of moments in this trailer that I found to be very visually appealing and, like, striking, you know? Uh, So that's good. But in terms of, like, content or or story-wise, like, I very much would say I'm kind of aligned with Marco on this one. Where, you know, I already know this story and it it, it wasn't anything new to me and I, I wasn't, like... I'm not excited for this movie anymore because it's been pushed so many times and I really don't know what to expect quality wise. So it's like, even though there were moments that were cool, there've been plenty of movies where I've really enjoyed the trailer and the final product wasn't exactly what I was hoping for. Um, Man of Steel springs to mind. That's like one of the best superhero trailers ever made, but I didn't feel like the movie got that tone right. So I don't know. I don't know what to make of this trailer. What did you think about it, Sean? I'm, I'm really interested to hear what you have to say being the big Jean Grey fan. Man, uh, I really, really, really want to like this movie, but this trailer is just not good. It's just, it's right. It's I've, just I've watched it like five times, six times, and I just want to like it, but I don't. Um, it looks good, like you said, in terms of the visuals. Um, one of the things that. Uh, was important to uh, gosh, what's the director's name? Oh, Jesus. Why can't I remember this? Simon Kinberg. One of the things that was important to Simon Kinberg was to get a very stripped down look for this movie um, to make it look a little more analog. Um, and I think he pro- I think he nailed that. Um, yeah, because I, I really did not like how they made um, what is it? Is it Maisie Williams or is that the other girl from Game of Thrones? Sophie Turner. Sophie Turner. Yeah, Maisie Williams is her younger sister on the show. Um, I did not like how Sophie Turner looked in Apocalypse, like with her powers. You know, uh, and and I thought the you use the term more analog. It looked more analog, and that always works better for me. Uh, and I'm not, I'm, I don't have a problem with digital effects. I was one of the only ones of us who thought that the facial reconstruction in Star Wars was good, you know, but. Well, you, you mean analog in terms of like scenery, right? Like it, it looks just older. Just lo-fi. It looks, yeah. it looks, you know, 
he re- he specifically referenced Logan and how Logan was stripped down. Yeah, like well. Logan feels real. You know, like there's nothing in Logan where you're just like, this is all CGI. Even though there's tons of CGI in that movie, you know? But it's like that Lord of the Rings uh, mentality of like, take practical effects and enhance them with CGI. Yeah, he referenced that as well. So I, so first of all, it's established that Cyclops and Jean Grey have a relationship. Okay, cool. Where did that come from? Uh, obviously there's 10 years between Apocalypse and this and, you know, things happen and that's cool, but I guess the crux of my point is that even though in real life I care deeply for those two characters there's nothing that they've actually done on screen that leads me to have the same sort of feelings for Gene that these other characters do and that's a problem because she was only introduced, if I'm remembering correctly, I don't think she wasn't in, yeah, she wasn't in Days of Future Past. So this is only her second movie. And they're going from ne- us never seeing her to now she's Dark Phoenix. And now they're going to have to fight her. And her and Cyclops have this deep love and all this stuff that they haven't earned. In some ways, it's worse than the way they did it the first time. This is the fourth. Yeah. This is the fourth movie in the um, the world that was established by First Class, and these characters are the least developed, almost of the principal like mainline characters that we are supposed to care about: uh, Professor X, Magneto, um, Mystique. Of all of those, these two are the ones that have had the least development, and now are at the center of a movie. Yeah. And You're I saying think, that's a bad approach? Come on, Sean. I think it's really a shame because the cast is good. You know, like, I, I like yeah, all of great. these people in their, as, like, even the, and, like, I didn't uh, see Apocalypse, so, like, I can't actually speak to what their performances were, like, in film, but just, like, like look-wise, you know, and, like, from what I know about them as actors, what I've seen them in and other stuff, I like these kids, but... I don't know, man. I just, I just feel like this franchise really fell off the rails with Apocalypse, it's, and it's it doesn't also, seem like this movie's going to get it back. It's also just dreary, and you look at like you look at how Infinity War looks, right? Infinity War is a dark, dark movie, but it doesn't always feel like that. It's colorful, and yeah, and it's just, just oh, like, like a comic I'm, book. Yeah, I'm just tired of this. I don't want this anymore. I don't want the X-Men to always be so dark. They look silly in their costumes. Um just it, it's enough with this. I don't I don't know. I'm I'm supposed to feel good about this because it's Jean Grey and it's Cyclops and everything, but I don't. I just don't. There's nothing about this trailer. Like, I kind of like the idea of the X Men kind of splitting down the middle because some of them agree with Professor X and some don't. But then we got Magneto, who's like gonna be a heroic figure for 15 minutes, and then for the rest of the movie, a villain until the last, uh, you know, 15 minutes. They've done that every movie now with him. I'm tired of it. It's old. We've seen all of this already. So that's just my takeaway. And I'm probably going to have the same take until the movie comes out and I see it for myself. But this just feels like the same thing 
that they've been doing since literally the second or third X-Men movie that they ever made. Yeah, dude, and and I'm I'm definitely tired of it, and I, I don't want to beat this dead horse, but I, I guess, like, what you're saying, it just reminds me, like, the level of frustration that you even have reminds me of a video that um, one of my favorite YouTubers made after Logan, and, and I loved Logan, but um, her name's ComicBookGirl19, and she made this video about how she's really just sick of Fox's X-Men because they are so dark and dreary, and that, like, at the core of the X-Men uh, is, is stories about hope and camaraderie and family and finding a place where you belong and, and um, you know, and, and overcoming the, the darker parts of your, of yourself and of your life, you know, like Wolf, look at Wolverine, right? Like his whole story is that he's, uh, you know, this animal of a man who's, who finds himself through teaching and through connecting with kids. And um, uh I I agree. Like I'm just I'm done. I'm done with this dark, dreary, depressing universe. And like this doesn't seem like it's going to be a change. Or at least not the change that I want. And you know, yeah, I'll go see the movie. I know we're gonna talk about it on this show and everything. That's what we do, so it's like it it doesn't even matter. But like I am not excited for it and I don't have high hopes and honestly I kind of hope it's so bad that it's just we're fucking done with this. You know, we already know um, that that Kevin Feige is supposed to take over the X-Men at some point. So it's like, let's just get this over with. Like, let's just rip this fucking Band-Aid off and move on. I mean, I want it to be good because this is the last Fox movie we're going to get. Well, we're <laughs> there's a complicated issue with that that we're going to get to in a moment. This is the last, I think, Fox movie that we're going to get with the main X-Men characters. And I would like it to be good because it is a swan song in that respect. But ultimately, for this to be the way they're going out, with the same exact story that they told in The Last Stand with Jean Grey, it's just like, come on. And and, and, and to be honest with you, I'm, I sound stupid because we already knew that they were telling this story, you know? But at the end of the day... I care about these characters, so I want to give it a second chance, or I want to give it a chance. This trailer just didn't do it for me. Uh, so the movie is coming out on February 14th, 2019. Actually, that's a lie. It's not coming out on February 14th, 2019, because Fox has pushed back Dark Phoenix again. What? Messing with my books club schedule again? <laughs> right? And mind you, the trailer released with a release date for the film that's funny and then they changed the release date for the movie literally two days after the trailer came. this movie isn't coming out that's insane to me they moved it from a february 14th release to a june 7th Holy release shit how much work do they possibly still have to do on this movie they're trying to catch that, everything in post it doesn't it just doesn't make any sense just put this fucking thing to de- to bed, man. Let's take this fucking sick horse out back and shoot it in the head. Damn, son. So comicbook.com wrote an article about this, and they suggest that it's possible that Fox moved the release date because they think that, it, that this movie could compete during the summer. Um, and they would like to try to give it that summer push. Uh, Black Panther came out in February and did amazing, but that was a pretty unique... Uh, 
situation. So, okay, fine. Maybe that's true. But this is like the fourth time this movie has changed release dates. It was supposed to be out um, in, in November. Yeah, it was supposed to be coming out in a month. Well, you know, close. Let me ask you this. Do you guys think there's a chance this movie's going to flop? Because yes. like I, I, I really think like Maybe. that there is like I because I don't know right because I think a movie doesn't have to be good to make money. We saw that with the the DC EU right everything but uh, well even we don't have to argue about everything but Batman v Superman made money right people went and saw that movie uh, so people will go see a shit movie but. Is anybody excited for this anymore? Is anybody talking about this movie? Like, yeah, when the trailer came out, there was conversation around it again, but everybody talked about the trailer that just pimped the wrong date. So does anyone even know <laughs> this movie's actually coming out now? Like how many people are thinking it's coming out in the winter and then they're gonna it's gonna come and that date's gonna go and they're gonna have forgotten about it. And then it rolls around in the summer and it's like, do we still care? Mm. I don't it, know. It, it comes out what, a month after uh whatever Infinity War Part Two ends up being called? Like Am I going to be, be in the exhausted. mood for another big movie like that, right? Yeah. I don't I, know. I just don't know that this movie really has a shot at success. I think you're right. The other thing that's interesting is that they state that they moved Gambit. So Gambit originally had the release date of June 7th, 2019. I thought they canceled that shit. Not at all. <laughs> uh, Dark Phoenix is taking Gambit's spot. So now Gambit is moving to March 2020. So they pushed Gambit back, what, 11 months, 10 months? Basically. Yeah. When, Have what they even world, started shooting that movie? No. In what world was Gambit ever going to make that release date? Never. None. It's like that movie. I Like I said, I thought it was canceled. Like I know it's like changed hand. Like the only thing that's been consistent about it is that Channing Tatum is supposed to star in it. But like, who wrote it? The director. The, there is the no vision. director. There's, but there's that's no what director. I'm saying. Like, it's the, there's none of those things, and there were, but they've left, and it's or whatever, and like, there's been creative differences. This thing's been in development hell for like five years. It's insane. It's insane that this is what that this is how Fox is closing it out. Um, and and I don't think Gambit ever comes out. I think that's insane. There's there's no, no way. No, not at this fucking point. Come on. You know, it's like, I don't like I said, I don't even know if this movie's coming out. <laughs> it has to it, now, right? I like, I guess it so. has to, but like you say that. <laughs> and I, all I'm saying, right, is like, and, and I, I made this point before, and I'm not saying I think this is definitely going to happen, right? I'm not saying this is my, don't, don't come at me in episode 200 that this was my garbage takes, but <laughs> fucking... We talked about it last week on the video game, pals. We're going to talk about it again on this on this week's show. I didn't think that in a million years that there was ever a chance when I paid for the season pass for The Walking Dead's final season from Telltale that it would get canceled halfway through, right? Um, there's plenty of fucking movies or TV shows or video games or comics that get ridiculously far along and then somebody axes it because they decide enough is enough. But enough not, resources are wasted. Not not to the point of a trailer. Not yeah. to the point of this is pretty far along. Not in movies. I'll give you that. If this happened, it would be unprecedented for film. But that sure should happen for games. Uh, That's a different world. You're right. But they they the the budgets are similar. Like I'm just saying, it's like 
I don't, I don't think it's impossible. If this movie gets canceled, I'm not going to be like, oh, I'm fucking Nostradamus over here. But it's one of those things of like, how many times do they push this movie? How many trailers do we see? How many, uh, or, 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 you know, teases for the art do we see before this movie's been in development for what? Fucking multiple years. It's already been pushed back. It was supposed to have come out, what, last winter? In November. Uh, originally. Last November. And then they pushed it to winter of this year. And then it was supposed to come out. You know what I'm saying? Like, because wasn't it supposed to come out in March, too? Uh, it's been pushed like three times I, I, now. I think I think that's that's I think that's New Mutants. Uh, oh, okay, okay, all right. So I might I might this, be well, I, I might be giving them more shit than they deserve well, on that is, one. Well, but, but this is the this is the third release date the movie has had though. Its original release date, if I'm thinking correctly, was November. It right? was, yeah. And then it got pushed back to February, and then it yeah. got now again it took to June. So what what kind way, of movie? What kind of big budget movie that has already been done shooting principal photography for a year gets its release date pushed back two times? Last stand. Last stand. Also, what movie have you ever seen that goes through this much shuffling that ends up being good? Like, we talk on the show all the time. Reshoots, not a problem. That's standard. This level... Of, of reshuffling chairs on the fucking Titanic? I don't know, man. Like, I I can't think of the last... The last movie I remember having this tortured of a release was Justice League. And we all remember how that turned out. That's... I mean, I'm not gonna argue with that. Um, so, we'll see! And you know what, Pete? Uh, as it turns out, you are right. This movie was actually supposed to already be out. You're right. There we I'm, go. I'm, I'm looking. I'm looking. So and it was supposed to be out. It was supposed to be out in March. So oh. not. So not. Not three times. Four times. Right. Like that's that is so abnormal. So all the things that we've been saying of well, movies like that's how they. I don't know, dude. I I don't know. And I, I again, I'm not saying it's a sure thing, but I wouldn't be surprised. Could be good. Hey, in other Fox news though, they're releasing another Deadpool movie this year. Did you guys hear about that? Yeah, weird. So Fox announced a Deadpool movie, an untitled Deadpool movie, will be releasing this December. Except that we now know it's not actually an untitled Deadpool movie. It's just Deadpool 2, the PG-13 version. What? Yeah. That's dumb. In it, Like, in all the ways... That I thought Fox's swan song would happen. I didn't imagine it would be this ridiculous. Deadpool 2, an R-rated movie, is being released as a PG-13 movie. What is that? What's that cut going to be like? 45 minutes? <laughs> I figure I figure there's got to be a way that they can kind of make it funny and, and do some things. But if this wasn't always in the cards then I don't understand how they're going to cut this up to make it work. I mean, it'll either be a lot fucking shorter or, like you said, it's something that they thought about from the start, that they they did takes that were not filled with curses. and Because, like, you had to think maybe they had safety takes, like, in the event that, oh, this is, like, NC-17, it's too much. And they're like, okay, we'll cut some of this stuff for more stuff that's, you know, a little bit more, um, you know. Palatable. 
right. That's a great word for it. How do you explain De- oh, X-Force not being in the rest of the movie if you can't show the way they die? I mean, I don't think I don't think you can't show them die. I, I think, like, really, what like... The one guy gets cut to pieces in the... In the- the, the helicopter blades. Yeah, you're right. That's, like, super violent. Um, and I think, like, that – they'll maybe have to, like, censor some of that stuff. But when you really, like, look at uh, the difference between PG-13 and R, a lot of it has to do with more language. I think it's more mostly going to be censorship of fucks and shits and that sort of thing more than it's going to be a problem with the violence. I've seen some pretty violent PG-13 rated movies, you know? They're, one of the biggest gags in the movie includes a, a De- Deadpool's tiny dick when he's a baby, or when not right. when he's a baby, but when he's regrowing himself. Yeah, that that can't be in the movie. No. You can show uh, him from behind, though. You know, it's like there are yeah. ways they can play around with some of those scenes. I think. Yeah. Um. I just I don't know. I don't get this. I. It's I, weird. I, they want to make more money off the movie. You know, fine. I guess. I don't. I just don't know that there's an audience that hasn't seen this movie yet. I, I do think this will make a lot of money because I uh, for, for a re-release it's 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 fighting against Aquaman. That's true. I don't know though. I you're probably right though that there's not, maybe not a huge contingency, but I don't know. Like I could see there being a lot of 13 year olds who are not comfortable being like mom or dad bring me to see Deadpool two because I don't want to sit there and watch it with you, but I'll go see it with my friends. Do they have the internet? Can they, did they not download it illegally? That's like, a good it point. Came too, out though. already yeah, on DVD. Like it's already on DVD. If it wasn't already on DVD, this would make more sense to me. That's a great point, though. Yeah. No. I. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. I, I, I was try. I was trying to like uh, money. Like they'll make money on it, but like uh, maybe you're right. Like I don't know. It'll be really interesting to see what the box office returns on that are. Sure. Um. It looks like he might be telling the story of the movie to a child. That's that's something that um, that's, that's kind of been rumored. Um, okay, and 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 sort of making it PG for the sake of the story that he's telling. Sure, you know, which could be funny with him narrating and and them just cutting away at certain moments or whatever. I don't know. Will I go see it? I can almost guarantee you, I won't. No, me neither. I didn't love Deadpool two enough to want to see that, but. I saw it twice. I'm good. Yeah. I'm interested to see what, how they make that work, though, for sure. Yeah. What else, though, is PG-13? Do you guys know of a certain shared universe that have characters that are similar to Deadpool that is also a exclusively PG-13 universe? Can you think of anything? Um... Has characters like Spider-Man in it and Captain America. Uh, oh, 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 Harry, um, Harry Potter. N- no, close, close. <laughs> Damn, Lord of called? the Rings. <laughs> the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yep. I am wondering if that is not a move to bring Deadpool, since we're not going to get another Deadpool movie under Fox, to bring Deadpool closer to palatability palatability. For the MCU. You know what, Sean? Interesting. Could be legit. Hmm. I, I that's, just, a, that's a take. That's a take. I like yeah. it. I, I, I just don't know. Uh, so, in other news, um, I, I did want to take a moment to uh, mention the death of uh, Norm Brayfogel, who is a... Uh, legendary comic book artist, um, uh, most well known probably for 
Batman. Uh, he, he did art for Batman for nine years. He created uh, or co-created characters like uh, Ventriloquist and, uh, v- you know, v- Victor Victor Zaz, characters that are, I mean, they've been everywhere at this point, right? Um, uh, he, he did work for Marvel as well. Um, you know, he, he did work on the Avengers, Black Panther, uh, Moon Knight. Um, he, he, he worked in, in a ton of different places. And uh, a lot of the comic book community have come out to sort of remember him. Uh, Jim Lee tweeted out the following. Tremendously saddened to hear of the passing of the great artist Norm Brayfogle. With his dynamic and expressive style, he was one of the beloved, definitive Batman artists who brought him to life for generations of appreciative comic book fans. Um, Tom King chimed in and said, When I close my eyes and think of Batman... I see Norm Brayfogle's cover for Batman 465. The Protector and his ward, the bats in the night, the cape and the shadow. RIP, Mr. Brayfogle, thank you for the beautiful dreams. Um, and that the cover that he actually does link in his tweet is, I would say, pretty iconic. Um, you've probably seen a version of that somewhere. Yeah. Um, it's one of those images that you see recontextualized a lot. Yeah. So, you know... Not a ton to say. I personally don't think I've read something that he drew, um, but still, you always hate to hear a, any any loss in comics, especially when it's a legend, someone whose art has impacted the way that we, you know, sort of think about these characters visually now. Well, yeah, and like you said, contributing uh, to to a, a char- like contributing members to Batman's rogues gallery is like a, that's a huge achievement. You know, it's like, it's the most, you know, excluding like maybe one or two other candidates. Like, I think it's pretty accepted that Batman has the rogues gallery and like creating characters that are a part of that tapestry is like a huge achievement. Um, So yeah, uh, (laughs) it's, it's always one of those things where it's so sad to hear the news of these losses, but when it is somebody who's a Titan like this, I have to, at least take some solace and like, Hey man, the work lives on, you know, like your contributions will not be forgotten. And, uh, I think for an artist, that's the the greatest honor that you can achieve really, you know, is to make something that's bigger than yourself. And that's something that Norm definitely did. So, um, rest in peace. Absolutely. Uh, so for our last news segment, before we jump into the main topic uh, of us re- reviewing, Doomsday Clock number seven and Heroes in Crisis number one. Um, Sean Gordon Murphy has announced the return to the White Knight sort of Murphy verse of of Batman comics with Batman Curse of the White Knight. Uh, this was first announced by Paste, uh, Paste so PasteMagazine.com. Um, so Batman White Knight is actually gonna, or Curse of the White Knight rather, is actually going to. Continue the story, but it's going to add Asriel to the mix. Asriel is a character oh. who... What you guys just did, did what I was going to say. So thank <laughs> you for that. Uh, <laughs> um, he's got a lot of fans. So uh, Murphy had the following to say. For Batman Curse of the White Knight, I'm rewriting a former Batman ally to become a threat far greater than the Joker ever was. And then the um, the sort of 
uh, synopsis goes, In this explosive sequel to Sean Murphy's critically acclaimed blockbuster Batman White Knight, the Joker recruits a savage partner to help him expose a shocking revelation about the Wayne family's legacy and run Gotham into the ground. As Batman rushes to protect the city and his loved ones from this corrupt conspiracy, the mystery of his ancestry unravels and deals a devastating blow to the Dark Knight. Exciting new villains and unexpected allies will clash across history in this unforgettable chapter of the White Knight saga, and the truth about the blood they shed will shake Gotham to its core. Damn. That's a hell of an elevator pitch. And it's a black label book, by the way. Oh, oh nice. Dope. Sean, cool. the, the first White Knight, what was that? that one, what was that about again? So the first White Knight was about the Joker getting... Um, like, medication that can okay. cure his his insanity like, okay and he but but he still has an agenda against batman it's just that now he see he sees batman as a part of gotham's ills and wants to put him bring justice to gotham by stopping batman and he, he runs for uh, office right uh he oof, no yes he does he does he does he run be, for office he yeah. becomes like somebody significant in gothams yeah he, oh. he, he it's it's asking the question sort of of um can can a person who's done such evil be redeemed if his goals are now pure and and it recontextualizes batman in a sense um and it asks some tough questions about him and what he contributes to gotham's ills and um it, it's actually really really good I think if it had the black label on it from when it was released, you guys would have bought it. Um, but black label didn't exist at that point. It is supposed to be. Sean Murphy said it was going to be re-released as a black label book, leading into this. Have, have they not done a collection yet? I don't think so. It didn't end that long ago, so I don't think the collection's out yet. But I would strongly recommend it if you're looking for something Batman that isn't in continuity and at, at all, yes. but does does kind of like pull from the history but not so much that you need to have an inordinate amount of knowledge uh that feels more mature and that 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 does ask some interesting questions i think that picking up white knight would be a really good choice i i definitely am interested in the book because i remember we didn't really talk about it when it first came out and it wasn't until i think it was maybe two or three issues in that uh both you and andy from the video game pals were like this is really good and i think you i think you would specifically like it Mm -hmm. um so I'm interested in it, but ever since then I haven't been able to like – I've been waiting for the trade because like the singles were gone at my local shops because I guess it was popular or they weren't ordering enough copies or whatever. But um, it's definitely a book that piqued my interest in a pretty serious way. I, I like uh, deconstruction kind of stuff, especially like – and I, I think I said this like on the last episode. I like it when it's done with characters that are so well-established. You know, We've seen Batman in so many different shades and so many different – interpretations and getting to see you know a universe where the joker is the good guy uh maybe is it's, it's interesting it's, it's definitely novel and uh i'm interested in in giving it giving it a read and the fact that it has a sequel is definitely you know a strong motivator for me to want to check it out because we'll probably be talking about it again so it'll get my you know it, it, it's got like now it's back on my radar in a way that it wasn't because i hadn't thought about it in a while and so yeah go ahead mark i was just saying and uh murphy's a the stellar creator man you're not kidding uh getting to see him be in total control of his vision with this book that must be cool it was incredible 
I had never read anything that he wrote, so I was worried about that mm-hmm. going in. But if you guys will recall, I shouted out every issue yeah. uh, as my pals pull every yeah. time it came out. I was so impressed. It really, really uh, found an emotional uh, core that I didn't expect it to have um, that proved to me that Sean Gordon Murphy is a master. So, again, highly recommend it, and I can't wait for the sequel. Cool. You know what, man? We should uh, we should do a book club on that. Like, I was going to say that off air, yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, now I'm, te- I'm teasing it. I'm teasing it, I'm, you know? Yo, I'm not holding it against you. I'm just saying, like, <laughs> I had the same thought you had. So, yeah. Hell yeah. All right. So, uh, we're going to be reviewing two books this week. We're talking... Heroes in Crisis number one and Doomsday Clock number seven. Uh, both of these are highly anticipated for sure. And the reactions to both have been really, really, really interesting. So, Wait, you I, guys are talking about Doomsday Clock and Heroes of Crisis? Heroes in Crisis. Wait, what? Heroes I'm sorry, I'm crisis? just walking back in. <laughs> um, yeah, Phil, we are. Hopefully you uh, did the homework. Uh-oh. Um, so let's let's start with let's start with Heroes in Crisis because this is a book that a lot of people had a lot of concerns about coming in. We actually talked about that on a prior episode of the show just some some criticisms that people had of the way that DC was promoing the book and some actual psychologists had come forward and said that they weren't sure about how this was actually going to play out whether this would be representative of what um, mental health disorders are really like. Um, so we're, we'll talk about that. But before we dive into like all that kind of meteor stuff, um, <clears throat> I, I do want to just talk about like our thoughts on the book itself. Um, this is Tom King. This is Clay Man. This is Clayton Cowles. This is a bomb creative team on this book, about as good as it gets over at DC. What did you guys think about it? Pete, you want to start? Sure. Um, so I, I was really surprised that there was so much backlash because, uh, I had, I had a conversation with it, uh, about it with a, a friend of ours off, um, off mic on social media, uh, shout out to Brian Del Pozo cause he had, he had kind of publicly said he didn't like it. And I, I saw a, a few criticisms come up in that thread, all of which, um, I could see, right? Like, it's not like the criticisms that I've seen lobbed, I think are totally far-fetched. But um, they didn't bother me as much as they did for other people. You know, like, I, they're, I'm willing to give um, a first issue a fair amount of rope, right? And, like, some of the things that didn't work for me didn't outshine the things that did. Um, I thought that, like, the interviews that they did uh, with some of the the, the victims um, <clears throat> were were really interesting. Like, I, I like that as a device, you know? And, and I think that um, particularly some of the moments with Superman worked for me pretty well as well. So I don't think that there was a ton here. It's not like I was over the moon for it, but um, it felt like it felt like a good setup issue. And I'm interested to see what what the mystery is and, and how it unravels and, and if Tom King's going to be able to pull off what he's trying to do here, you know, despite... Um, some of people's concerns maybe being founded, you know, but uh, I, I, I still have faith in Tom that, that the end result is going to be something that I'm interested in. So I'm very much looking forward to issue number two. Phil, what'd you think? Um, I wasn't crazy about it. Uh, my initial response reading it is it felt like cry for justice by uh, Robinson. <laughs> and that brought back some, by the way, just for context, that was a book I really anticipated, um, uh, 
I was really interested in it because I was reading a lot of Green Arrow and I was reading a lot of Green Lantern at the time. And that book let me down in a way maybe no other book ever has. It was really bad. And obviously this wasn't Cry for Justice bad, but that, that was the feeling I got. Um, I don't want to get into spoilers, we but... It Why was not? Just, this, is a, this is what we do. Okay, yeah. So if you haven't read it, you know, and you don't... If you haven't read it and you care about spoilers, you know, fast forward a bit. But otherwise, strap in. Um, I didn't like the tone. Like, it felt kind of uh, edgy, which is not how I usually associate uh, Tom King. Uh, and I didn't like the Booster Gold Harley Quinn stuff. That felt like... Harley Quinn is, like, such a difficult character to utilize, I think, to begin with, because she can teeter so easily on that kind of uh, unnecessarily edgy kind of stuff. Um, I didn't like all these C-list, D-list characters kind of just dying off screen. I know that's to set up a mystery, but, like, it, it, it's there's no heat, you know? It's just, it happens, and it just irritates people that read these books. Um, obviously, the big thing here is... Wally West died after being brought back in the button just, you know, a year and a half ago or whatever. He wasn't brought back in the button. Jay Garrett. Oh, he was brought brought back in the Flash, right? He was brought back in Rebirth, number one. Oh, that's right. You're right. It was Rebirth. That was... Button is like the spiritual successor to... uh, to, Yeah. To Flashpoint one. Or the the Rebirth, number one. But you're right. Um, uh, A lot of the... The psychological stuff, psychological issues kind of felt glossed over and not really given a lot of... Uh, uh, teetered on being kind of uh, like a non-factor. Like, it was a factor, but, like, it wasn't meaningful. Obviously, it's an issue one. Um, and, the, and the other thing I kind of thought is the whole Booster Gold thing at the end is clearly a red herring because it suggests, oh, he killed all these characters when uh, I think that's clearly not going to be the case. Um... Maybe that's uh, is no consequence. Uh, the big positive here for me is Clay Man's art. I thought it was just absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, um, yeah. home run just uh, through and through. Um, absolutely. But you know what? It's an issue one. Uh, I have I also have faith in Tom King and his creative team. Uh, but just as a debut issue, it just kind of gave me a like, bad deja vu of of Cry for Justice. Uh, so we'll see. Marco. Um. I kind of, uh, Phil mentioned it like that this is sort of a grittier Tom King and I sort of like that. It, it's something that I haven't um, seen from him necessarily in this sort of way outside of something like A Sheriff of Babylon, which I really enjoyed. Um, and with respect to the art, like Clayman, he's not somebody who I'm, like, I- I'm familiar with his work, but I don't read anything that he's on. So this knocked me out. Uh, like this was stellar art um and i think story-wise uh i see some i i I, i'm intrigued by the mystery um but to your point phil like when they sort of interject the the cutaways it's a cool device but i don't think it adds a lot and i think that was a little sort of frustrating especially if it was supposed to be sort of the book around you know these characters and their um and their mental health and all that and uh i think it it was glossed over but again this is an issue one and i think it's sort of just setting the scene yeah and 
it's introducing establishing the concept. Yeah, it's it, definitely and and like it's introducing the this this sort of um, sanctuary. Yeah, exactly. And I think that for that it was okay, but um, outside of that, I think it was a sh- it was a strong first issue, but it wasn't anything that like knocked me out of the park. What are you, Sean? Man, uh, I have some very complicated feelings about this that, book. Yeah, complicated is a good way to put it. This comic book represents exactly the reason why I think it's silly that in, in a, within a shared universe, Marvel and DC are afraid to tie things together too much. Because nobody has seen Sanctuary before. Uh, it's been referenced loosely throughout the the last year. We know if you read if you read Batman religiously, you know that Booster Gold was taken there by Batman after recent events, where he like tried to give Batman a, a birthday gift, and he 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 went back in time and like saved Batman's parents, and that threw everything into out of whack. Yeah, it's it, crazy stuff. So, Booster Gold's emotional, emotional and mental state has been called into question for a while now. So, that's why he's a, um, that's why he's a suspect here. Why it makes sense that he's a suspect. But all that we have seen is okay. We're taking this person to sanctuary, and then that's it. Nothing happens. So to go from that to a book that's so rooted in this concept, well, okay, so how come we've never seen it before? That, that, that doesn't make any sense to me. And the idea that DC didn't do anything to show it prior to now doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't because you, It doesn't. It doesn't. You have to ex- – so you go from not even knowing what it is. Let's say you're not a regular reader of Batman. Uh, you go from not knowing what it is to – being presented with the concept and people having died there, that a mass yes. murder happened there within the exact same issue. Yes. That's crazy. Yes. 100%. That doesn't make any sense. No, you're definitely right. And I hadn't thought about that because we've talked about it so much. Right. You know? And, like, going into it, I have the context in my mind of, oh, well, this is Sanctuary and this is, like, the whole point of the story. And, like, I know that context because – of what we do on this show. But if I just picked up this issue one out of nowhere, you're right, I wouldn't have known. Let me ask you three a question. Do you think this book, this issue, did a good job of introducing the sanctuary concept? No. Yeah. No. Mm, that's like I I feel like for me it did a good enough job. Yeah. But not but I think to your to Sean's point, I to the average reader probably no, not at okay. all. Okay. Who works at Sanctuary? Uh there were three robots that were based on Kryptonian technology, That's and they really looked like they were like Mon, Pa, Ken. And what do they do? I'm going to find out. They fix superheroes. That's, uh, <laughs> that's I don't know. That's what it's I know. It's vague. You know, you're, you're right. You're right. Like, it's very... I have a surface level understanding of what is there and what's going on. But to Phil's earlier point, it, it, it's an issue one. We could learn that information, it's- but... That's, it doesn't set things up. That's tricky, though, to Sean's point for something that's supposed to have been there for years. Like, yeah. It, yeah. That's a weird narrative point to be like, oh, by the way, this is something you never knew about of all your characters. It, it kind of harkens to the the identity crisis thing where it's like, by the way, it turns out that Dr. Light had a lobotomy performed on him and all these characters basically split and divide here because he did something really bad. You just didn't know about it. 
it, it, it takes it's a lot of assumptions on your established canon. But that's different because that was playing off a secret that those characters had kept right. and wiped the minds of others who knew. That was so an actual secret. This right, isn't that a I get. And that's not and this is a concept. That's not a concept. Yeah. That's a thing that happened. This is a concept. You can't in my in my opinion, you can't introduce a concept this significant in the same event where everything about it goes wrong, especially because this is something that would be integral to these characters. It wouldn't just be a, you know, a, a, like a, a whatever thing. Batman taking Booster Gold to Sanctuary is very significant. So how do we get to see the good parts of, of what this thing was? Yeah, Maybe, flashbacks. Yeah, right. Maybe some flashbacks. I know that they did announce that there would be uh, issue, I believe, three and seven were going to, to be sort of flashback issues. But that was only done because Clay Man needed more time. So originally the, we wouldn't yeah. have even gotten that. What was the plan before that? And the, yeah, no. The real issue here is just the execution. People love Wally West. He is a beloved character. For most people our age or a little bit older, that is their Flash. Because he was the main Flash for 30 years. And this is how... I mean, it's very possible the character isn't dead. He was the only character to not receive uh, a Sanctuary interview in this issue that was deceased. Um, no, he wasn't. Well, he was like the only primary one, I guess. Like of the, Because, I mean, Arsenal had one and some of the other ones did. Um, yeah, they showed a bunch of other people on the ground, but not necessarily people who we had identified. Right, says and Steel didn't have one, but like the big reveal is that Arsenal and Wally West were dead. Um, that's a, the, the way they did it was so such a throwaway thing. But again, like I think, where's the, I don't know. Where's, where's, I, I, I feel like we're putting a lot of weight on that moment and like we don't even know like again what if we get that as a flashback we get like the story the at some impact. other point you don't think no because that, that, that doesn't work that way because when someone's dead that that should be the impact not the flashback because if any a flashback when it comes to a death is like a mystery you're solving a mystery that's the point like you're you're trying to uh wrap up loose ends when it comes to a popular character that's not a satisfying death. Here's the thing. Satisfying in the case of the death of Wally West, that's yeah. not possible. I know. There is, there is no satisfying way to do this because it shouldn't be done. And I know that it's weird for me to be saying that because I I don't play uh, sacred with characters. But the, the, the problem with Wally West dying is that they literally just brought him back. And that was a huge emotional impact moment in, and in Rebirth. On top of that, if you read The Flash, Wally West has been going through a very, very significant and meaningful story arc that impacts – that has huge impacts on DC. And at the, at the end of Flash 51, they say, hey – uh, Wally West's story will continue in Heroes and uh, Heroes and Crisis number one. What's the continuation of his story? Oh, he's dead on the ground. In addition to that, his return ties into the whole Doomsday Clock situation. That is a st that's something that I want to talk about a little bit later. This book feels almost antithetical to what's happening in Doomsday. Let's Clock. Let's talk about that a little later. Okay. So, <laughs> so to take it back to the book, the other problem that I have, and mind you. I liked it. I was okay with the book. I don't think it's great or anything, 
but I liked it. The other big problem that I had with it is the dialogue yes. feels super stilted. Yes. Uh, Tom King, this is, look, I love Tom King, but this is one of the only things that I have criticized him for is that when he's writing superheroes, and especially Batman, he writes them in ways that don't feel authentic. Why is Batman talking like he is some kind of, uh, like, like he talks like he's being written. He doesn't talk like I expect Batman to talk. He's, he, he has a line in the book uh, towards the very end of it where he says, and it's a, like, don't get me wrong, it's, it's kind of cool, I guess. It just doesn't feel appropriate. He says, uh, our hope for redemption is now just another hunt for vengeance. In the moment yeah. of seeing your friends dead, that's what you think about? Some cool line to say? Right. Like, that's a cool line, but it doesn't feel, and, 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 like, and, emotionally appropriate. And just two pages earlier or whatever, or a page earlier, he asked Wonder Woman, uh, one, uh, he, he asked a question and Wonder Woman knows the answer to it. And it just, that kind of took me out of it, too. Because I feel like Bruce has a pretty rich tapestry of knowledge for stuff. I can't remember the context. I don't have the specific issue in front it, of me. It was it was uh, someone wrote on the wall in blood, the puddlers are dead. Yeah, and I yeah. feel like Bruce would know what a puddler was. is. I agree with that, too. I, I, I tried not to read too much into it because I understand he probably wanted all three of the Trinity to have something to say. Why couldn't Superman not know what a puddler is? I, he had just spoken. <laughs> yeah, right? But, 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 you're, that's, but that's, you're, you're right. That's poor framing. You're right. I don't. I don't disagree. Uh, I also think the scene between Harley and Booster was really strange. It didn't make any uh, sense to me. Har- yeah, There's- I didn't understand the the. What was the motive for Harley? Or or just like that that moment at all? Like they're they're already fighting, and then she walks into the same diner, and they decide to sit and eat, and then they you know she just stabs him, and like yeah. it felt very like I I just. I, I felt that way throughout that storyline, where there were just moments where I'm like, I'm not really sure why this is happening right now. Yeah, the motive for Harley was that she thinks Booster Gold killed everyone. Killed everyone. He also thinks she killed everyone. That's whatever. Fine. Okay. But to to stage their meeting in a diner, uh, to have there be any way that Harley could fight Booster and not he, die if that's what he wanted. Shield. That's she can make him bleed. It, again, it's just very much like. Tom King wants to tell a story. He wants to tell it in a specific way with specific characters. So he's going to do what he has to do to get to the to where he wants to get, and that's whether lazy. it makes sense or not. And that's something that Bendis gets criticized for all the time. And I'm very curious as to whether or not people will say the same thing about Tom. Uh, I've definitely seen people on the internet make that comparison. Also, yeah, I think I think it's. Oh, go ahead, Phil. Well, it's just. I think my my main thought here after reading this is this this would be better served as a book as a standalone out of continuity just its own thing. Yeah. And I I think that's true. Um because it seems like Marco and I definitely had a uh, less negative to say about it than um people who are actively engaging with what's going on in the DC yeah. right now. Yeah. And I I think like Sean's point about this being such a significant thing that we've never heard of or seen until now works if it's out of continuity it works if it's just this is the story and you know these characters so assume enough about the background right like it's a universe similar enough to the dc standard um or i think it could have really maybe issued from like an issue zero you know that like was a uh a story about the sanctuary through the years like 
when the Trinity founded it, why they did it, you know, like what went into it, just like, and even if it was like just the broad strokes so that you could read that and then walk into this first issue with that context, that might've been enough to, to make it serviceable, right? That, um, that, yeah, even that would be fine, but I always sort of feel like you know, issue like zeros are cop-outs. Yeah, they're, it's they're a cop-outs. crutch, it's a crutch. I don't like it, but like you said, it would have been better than what we got. It would have worked. I, I listen, all your ideas, all the, the ideas that you guys are, are suggesting are workarounds for the fact that this just didn't, that DC didn't do a good job of introducing this concept. It should have been introduced within the books in a way that we could see what it was a long time ago. Because, it, okay, so if you're not a regular reader, you still won't know because you don't read regularly. But at least you could have known if you had if you had paid attention. You or you you could have had one of your friends who's in the know tell you. You right. could have listened right. to a show like ours. You could have read the CBR article that here's everything you need to know before that. That was the thing that happened for Doomsday Clock, right? Like I didn't read any of the Road to Doomsday except for like the one issue that you showed me, Sean. But I knew what happened. And I right. was able or, to walk into that book with that context. Or how about how they used to do it, where they would put on the like on the border at the top, oh, uh, heroes in crisis uh, tie-in or something like that, like in the in the in the March to the books release, so we know, okay, I gotta buy this because this is related. Both Marvel and DC have shied away from that concept because readers have criticized them for making them buy books they they normally wouldn't, but. If you want to know what the story is, at least you have the option. And if you don't, don't buy it. It's your money. Do what you want. But to do this this way just doesn't make any sense. However, I do want to not completely crap on the book. There were parts that I liked. Uh, when Hotspot did his interview, that hit me really hard. I thought that was great. Yeah. That, for me, was really effective. Uh, yeah. like, And then, like, I I, I had a, a – like, a – I don't want to say like a physical reaction. I didn't cry or anything like that. But you know, like when you read something and you get that reveal and you it hits you and you have that, oh, that moment where Superman goes, isn't there something that he said I can't remember? That really was – that was an emotional moment. And I thought that yeah. I thought that worked really well. You, you'd expect Superman to remember something like that. Yeah. So, but and, not to remember something like that is kind of uh, impactful. Well, and especially when this guy said, like, I'm afraid and, you know, I'm just trying to be someone. I'm trying to be something and make a difference. And, you know, even if I die, at least they'll remember me. And it's like they didn't. Yep. Right. Uh, For Blue Jay, Blue Jay to be dead, the way he got eaten by the bird was just like, I actually didn't even notice that on my first read through. I read it again and then I caught that. But um, his his interview also, I thought, was very impactful. I had a. I strong agree. reaction, and I, I I also had a reaction to uh, Arsenal's interview. I thought that that was that was the most effective uh, one in terms of like, wow, I never thought about it that way. Of like, heroes save things is what he says, and the implication being he saved himself by getting addicted to pills to fight the pain that he feels because he's a regular person. Arsenal that was hugely important. Arsenal's one of my favorite comic book characters. He's in my top 15, top 10, and um, I really like that. And I was like, ah, oh, fuck, they killed Arsenal. But, I, yeah, and that's the thing is, like, I don't, I don't have that connection to that character, but I know his history, and I know 
that aspect of the character, and I felt like that was such a great moment. And, like, yeah. as someone who's a fan, I understand why you wouldn't want them to kill him off. But um, that interview, I thought, was so good. And, like, even just, like you said, Sean, the thought of, yeah, like, this regular guy who goes toe-to-toe with superhumans day-to-day, yeah, he probably would need to take painkillers, right? Like, it, it reminded me of when uh, I read, like, a retrospective recently about... Um, how all the guys from like Jackass ended up addicted to painkillers over that sort of thing. Yeah. And it's just this thing of the human body's not meant to go through what this guy would have to go through to be a superhero. And that's a really realistic look at superheroes in a way that you don't often get, especially in major, you know, mainline continuity like that. And I thought that was a really cool moment, you know? Yeah. Um, and And then my last point is that Death in comics is something that people often, you know, are really mad about. And that was something that people were upset with. Like, why do they have to just kill characters? Why is DC going, quote-unquote, grimdark again? Um, I think that's all BS. I think all of those points are BS because people die. And if comic books didn't have death, they wouldn't feel real. Um, And Tom King has a point to make, so he should be allowed to make that point. And if that point involves death, then that's what it is. Uh, The death of Wally West, I am going to give him the benefit of the doubt because I respect Tom King as a writer. I can't imagine why you would do that. That's crazy to me. Um, And I had a very strong reaction when I saw that. Shock, uh, frustration, anger, sadness, because I have grown. There's a character I, I didn't even care about prior to the Flash book. And now I actually have a deep affection for him. And in the one, the two-year span that I developed that, now he's dead. Uh, so that 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 doesn't feel good. But overall, I'm, I'm hooked for the ride because I have to be. Because I'm a fan of the overall work of Tom King and DC, I'm hooked into where they're going. But I don't know that I, I don't know that I'm enthused about the direction this book is taking based on this first issue. And even though I, I, I liked it, but I didn't love it, and I could have done without this. Yeah. Good way to put it. Uh, so let's talk about Doomsday Clock. Doomsday yes. Clock number seven. I'm into it. The, uh, I'm glad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's the end of the review. <laughs> uh, this book is obviously one that's been hyped uh, by us, by others, it's a big deal. This issue, uh, let's just jump right in. Doctor Manhattan is here. Phil, you you obviously are the most gung ho, so go right ahead. That's who that yeah. was. Yeah. Oh. Who'd you think? Who'd you I, think, Bud? Oh. Come on, talk about it. I only saw the blue penis. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that this is kind of where people have been wanting to go. Like people have been, they've, they've. Jeff and, and Gary here have kind of threaded this needle slowly here for seven issues. People have want, like they've teased Doctor Manhattan. They've had these allegories with a moth to a flame and stuff like that. Uh, we finally got him, Ozymandias, um, the, uh, the the Marinettes, and uh, uh, Batman and the comedian and Joker. But, yeah, they're all here, and Ozzy's finally able to present. You know, save our world. And Manhattan says no, and he's distracted. 
And the narrative structure they use is very uh, akin to the original Watchmen. Dr. Manhattan perceives the linear nature of time all at once. And the way we see earlier in the book of this issue, uh, the history of the Alan Scott Green Lantern, kind of like the different, uh, you know, different, the, the nature of maybe 10 seconds, how that could change time. What I took from this issue is for whatever reason, Dr. Manhattan is seemingly altering the DC universe to make it less hopeful. In in preventing Alan Scott from being able to touch the magical Green Lantern, it seems like we never were able to have the JSA, which was a huge complaint coming out of the New 52, is everyone loves the JSA. JSA is the very foundation of the DC universe and its very nature of, you know, being an establishment, a family of hope. It seems like Dr. Manhattan may have had a big part of the Kent's dying for Superman, which goes back to Grant Morrison's New 52 Superman. Uh, they died when he was a teenager. And that ties together with his prediction in the future, Superman's going to come at him, punching him, the most hopeful of them all being in despair and no hope, which Jeff Johns ties together saying that on this earth where there's a Superman, Christ, a Superman theory of like, you know, governments creating uh, artificial Superman and stuff. The Superman seems to be impervious to all this criticism. Something seems like it's going to come to a head where Superman is no longer going to be immune to this in the way that, you know, Batman clearly isn't because a lot of people are protesting Batman. I'm really interested to see where this comes, where this comes ahead. Because basically what this book's all about is the hope of what DC is intrinsically about versus the nihilistic nature of Dr. Manhattan and the Watchmen. I'm fucking into it. <laughs> I think I think that Jeff Johns and Gary Frank did a masterful job of bringing Dr. Manhattan into the fray. Because I think that there's a way to do that that comes across super cheesy. And that wasn't this at all. I think they built it, built towards it really effectively uh, throughout this issue. In particular, but through the entire book, I think he's been a presence for the Almost past six issue. issues. Yeah, and then the way that he comes into things now, the tension uh, there's just it's it was hectic. There was so much happening uh, between that. You have Batman and the Joker and the marionette and the mime all kind of having a fight together with the comedian in the mix, and um, just so many different elements at play. Uh, the way the book opens with um, Dr. Manhattan telling us the, the history of how he uh, prevented Alan Scott from getting the lantern. The, the history of the lantern itself, actually, um, was really crazy because I didn't, ex I didn't honestly know that Dr. Manhattan was going to be in this issue. Yeah. So for, for, for things to just start with his narration was really shocking. Um, and then to just go forward and find out that uh, that a um, that Adrian had a legitimate plan to summon Doctor Manhattan, and that it could work, and that it involved a lantern, was all shocking. But it wasn't played for that, I guess. Like, I I I don't know. Like, Jeff, exactly. It was just a cool thing to sort of like exactly. coalesce into one thing. Like all the little pieces kind of fit in and it's like, okay, that was cool the way that it, it popped up and it resolved it. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I think 
it's interesting because like I think you're totally right, Sean, because it wasn't like a shocking reveal for me. It was like a moment of like it felt like everything just clicked into place. Like it was like, oh, this is where we've been going the whole time. And it and it didn't feel like it was a twist. You know, it was just like a this is what all these pieces have meant. And now they're finally contextualized. This And that's that's good fucking writing, man. This was the most satisfying issue for uh, for Adrian fight because the way they structured him is that he's got cancer. Though if you recall when he was in the Gotham hospital, they said there's nothing wrong with him. That was a nice little tease. Um, but it's clear that he had everything orchestrated with Bubastis 2 being basically the conduit to attract Dr. Manhattan. And there's an alternate cover for Doomsday Clock number 8 that portrays Ozymandias as a puppet master, tying in with the marionette thing, with Dr. Manhattan in one set of strings and Superman on the other. Which indicates he's kind of in control of this whole situation, which ties together with Dr. Manhattan being on a damn chessboard as if he's another piece. Yeah, I I, I think the funniest thing, uh, I'm interested to hear what you guys have to say about this, but um, with the context of that cover, I think the major takeaway for me this issue was to really like, I guess, realize how truly intelligent Adrian is because obviously he's a genius, but the fact that he has been able to play Dr. Manhattan as a piece on his chessboard, not once, but twice speaks to the fact that like, he's literally outmaneuvering a God and like, that's insane. Like effectively, right? Like not exactly, but at the end of the day, like, Manhattan is supposed to be able to see everything past, present, or future, but he never fucking sees Adrian coming, and that's that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, because at the end of the day, Manhattan is still a man. Um, he's just a man that's completely out of touch with with reality because of how he perceives uh, time and space, and and specifically time. But because he he struggles with humanity, that's like his whole his whole thing is a rejection of humanity. Uh, Vite's able to exploit that by being extremely cunning in a Lex Luthor kind of way. and that's But also the fact that, that Dr. Manhattan doesn't care about any of this. Exactly. So Adrian is doing all this scheming and everything, and to Manhattan it's irrelevant. The, the result of Adrian's schemes does not impact Dr. Manhattan at all. So there's no reason for him to be overly concerned with what he's ever doing. Yeah, you're right, and that, that's why uh, Vite is able to kind of uh, play chess with him because he doesn't care, but he can. He's using that apathy, antipathy, to you know position him for his own needs and his own gains. Right, like if if Manhattan took him more seriously, he wouldn't be able to do that. But the fact that he knows John that well and can play him in that way is part of why he's able to succeed, or even not maybe not succeed, but get this far even. Right, like he he forces Doctor Manhattan's hand. I mean, not yet. He forces it. He not yet, but he forces him to meet with him, which is what he wanted. And again, we don't see that he's gotten what he wanted. But the fact that he spent, you know, what was it, almost ten years yeah. trying to clone um, Bubastis, uh, Bats, yeah, uh, and and then get to this other, build a ship that's capable of getting to this other universe to find this artifact that he can then use to pull Manhattan because he knows it'll physically hurt him. That's, yeah, like that's, he forces his hand. Whether he gets what exactly what he wants in the end remains to be seen, but the fact that he's even able 
to do that speaks volumes about what he's capable of. While while Johns is able to thread this big narrative with you know Black Adam's uh, uh, you know sanctuary, I don't mean that literally, but yeah, w- yeah. whatever he's calling his, his sanctuary for metahumans, uh, everything with the Superman project, that whole narrative, everything that's going on with Batman, Doctor Manhattan, Superman, he's able to still continue to weave like, an actual human element. Like when Doctor Manhattan says to Marionette that she's pregnant again, that's a very interesting moment. And when Rorschach too basically forsakes being Rorschach because he was completely manipulated by the man, you know, uh, who effectively had his parents killed. Yeah. So, go oh, on. go ahead, John. Oh, okay. I was gonna say I really love that. I love that they that John's finally commented on that because I remember thinking that felt a little um, revisionist. I suppose that they were like kind of trying to, and not that they were actually trying to, but that like that Rorschach did not ruin that marriage and that man. Yes, right, exactly. And I like that they very much had him be have this moment of like, open your eyes and see see the world for what it was, you know, for what it is. Um, and that 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 him having that revelation also played into the reveal that he had been being played by Ozymandias was. Um, just such a it's going to be an interesting turning point for that character right like where does he go from here what is his identity now because as long as we've known him this has been his this has been his whole thing right yeah and he's been singularly driven by this and it's been kind of the anchor for him uh through this madness that he's still like kind of experiencing you know and it's going to be interesting to see where where does he go from here what is his goal what is his mission now I, I sort of like that they that they did that, um, just because it, it it'll definitely give us. I, I feel like he's gonna be a, a larger maybe player. Like he might potentially leave, go find himself, or go do something that will affect the larger story outside of just him being sort of played. Um, at least I, I hope they continue to utilize him um, like that because it, it'll just give like we've commented how much we love the the newer characters, my Marionette and. Uh, to sort of see this transformation and see what he becomes, I'm just because of the way that I that Johns has been able to introduce characters. I'm I'm interested to see how his transformation will go because I'm interested to see that character interact with these guys. Yeah, Johns has done a really good job of grounding the story with the new characters. That's kind of his mark on it is that he's treating the older characters and the and the classical DC characters as they should be, but he's able to create with the newer characters that he's weaving into here and that's kind of really what makes it unique yeah i think um that's the human element right yeah and i think like it works for me in a similar way and your mileage may vary on you know how you feel about these two films but i think it reminds me of what's worked for me about the new star wars trilogy is that like i think it has to or for it to be successful it had to treat the original cast of characters as as like legacy to some degree and like they're not all legacy, right? Like Dr. Manhattan's still a major player. Ozymandias is still a major player. But it's the new characters that I find most compelling, you know, um, by a pretty wide margin. And because they're the ones that I can't predict, you know, I still have things to learn about them. And at the end of the day, like um, Ozzy having this big plan was something that was news to me. But like having the reveal that he's been pulling the strings the whole time is like, oh, well, that's like a pretty Aussie thing to do, isn't it? I am going to go out on a limb and say that this is a perfect comic book. 
Oh, wow. I don't know. I mean, Maybe. I I actually agree with you so far, Sean. I, I hesitate to say that because you don't want to jinx it, but... I mean, this issue. Oh, this issue. Okay, I, I'm, I'm saying doomsday so far. Like, there hasn't been an issue that I haven't thought was above average, you know? And, and I think it's it's... Each issue is built on its mythology in a way that I find have found to be really satisfying with, thus far. With Jeff Johns, I never have issues with his landings. He almost always sticks his landings. Um, so I, I, I have no doubt that it'll have a satisfying conclusion as a story. I think so too. Like he's gotten this far and I've been I've been impressed with every issue. Like to go from as Sean ribbed me for last week, um, fighting on the side of this book should never exist to hotly anticipating every issue. You know, uh, I, I think this is going to go down as an all time great book. I've said that before and I feel that way. Like I, it's, it's executed on its vision time and time again. And it, it can't go without saying Gary Frank's art is just phenomenal. Once oh again, my God. he's just a yeah. master. Yeah, please. Like <laughs> as good as Jeff John's writing is, I think Frank's art is better, and that's saying something because, like this, this just as a package is so attractive. It's it's really a truly high quality book. It's a it's an excellent example of uh, of the medium, you know, of just yeah. like a, a modern classic. Like yeah. I think again, as long as John's doesn't, and you know, because I have all confidence that Frank is gonna you know nail it. Um, the art will be good no matter where the story goes. As long as he sticks the landing, I don't see how this doesn't go down as an all-time great. So, what, before we um, move on to the last piece of this, what was teased... First of all, I love the way that it was teased because it's actually a very... Um, it's a, kind of a meta way to tease something. But at the end, in the last page, Dr. Manhattan is teasing what's going to happen in the next issue. And he says, in a month from now, yeah. Superman's going to come for me. And it's like, yeah. if this were releasing on a monthly schedule, that would be very uh, kind <laughs> of a funny nod. Um, but he doesn't know that, what's going to happen. He just know well, he knows Superman's coming. but And he's coming at him with fire and fury. That is one of the things that a lot of people, including people on this show, have said could ruin the book for them. That if Superman and Dr. Manhattan just come to blows, that is just too comic booky, quote unquote. Do you guys still feel that way? No, because I don't think it's gonna be handled that way. Yeah, if, I think oh I'm boy, sorry, go ahead. But 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 we see him flying towards Dr. Manhattan with the eye beams, with the anger. If they have a fight, a physical fight, is that something that you don't that you cannot stomach. Does that gonna, does that ruin it? I don't think it's gonna happen that way. I didn't ask you that question, Phil. I asked you if it happens. I don't know. I can't answer the question until it happens. Oh my god. That, I'm serious man. though, that's really how I feel. I, I, I need to see what Jeff and Gary do with it. I think if they're gonna go to to just blows, then I think that would be too comic booky. But if they do do something and I feel like they will be doing something more than that uh it'll be okay but if it's just like superman throws a punch dr manhattan throws a punch like that will definitely yeah, be over that. the top and not not to the quality that this book has shown us so far right yeah my question was if they fight because a lot of people said they don't want to see these two fight they want to see them talk so i was asking you know if they do end up fighting in my opinion that is a must at this point. I need to see Superman get his hands on Dr. Manhattan, but I don't I 
yeah, absolutely. I, absolutely. The idea that the idea that Superman his parents were murdered by Dr. Manhattan and you think they're not going to have a physical altercation is crazy. Well, yeah. Let's see what happens. I, I, I just I agree, don't want Sean. them to fight. But I, I think it's just like, I, I think we're putting too much weight on the, the actual moment. Because, like, I think they're going sure. to have a fight. I don't think that's going to be the conclusion not, of their... Right, that's not conflict. the end of the of the story, yeah. Right, I, exactly. I, and I, I think you're totally right, Sean. I think, I think that that's very much going to be like a climax moment. Like they're going to have that fight. It's going to be, and yeah, it seems like it's going to be next issue even maybe. I don't, and, I don't think well, it's going to be that way. I think Superman's going to come with a lot of fire and fury and I don't think it's going to actually result in blows. I think something unusual is going to happen. Yeah. Maybe. But I, I think either way, I, I don't, I think that's far from the end of the story, even if it happens. I think, I think Sean's right that, or at least I believe Sean is right that that Superman will get his hands dirty, but I don't think that's going to be even a meaningful part of their conflict. You know, like it, it's going to be what it is, and then I think we'll see where it goes from there. You know, that they're where the chips fall once the blows have been set, and maybe Superman realizes he can't just physically overcome him. You know, and then there is a moment of what were Manhattan's motivations? Why did he do this? Like. You know, and and hopefully that will be resolved in a more nuanced way. And I think it will be, you know, looking at how easily Batman and Rorschach could have just come to blows in an alleyway, right? Like, that's what you would have thought they were going to do. That was what I was afraid they were going to do when they announced this book. They didn't. I don't think we have any reason to, to worry. So last topic before we close out the show. Uh, like we said, like we teased earlier, Wally West represents sort of hope within the DC universe. He was introduced, reintroduced in Rebirth number one as a character who he was the he was the narrator in that issue and his return was the return of hope because the new 52 was so bleak. That's what Jeff Johns was going for. It's very clear. Um, to kill him comes across as a slight against Jeff Johns' vision for the rebirth era of the DC universe, which I think is a part of why so many people are angry, and is definitely a part of my reaction as well. Um, and that stands in contrast to Doomsday Clock, which is a story very much about sort of the same thing, except that it's it's coming at it from the other direction. Doctor Manhattan has tried to kill Hope within the DC universe. Because, in, in my opinion, because he saw what happened with the Minutemen and how that, the, the, the sort of what they introduced, which was initially a pure vision, led to chaos and destruction because of heroes, right? So I think that Dr. Manhattan sees this world, the DC Universe, that is in a similar place. So he goes back to the beginning to annihilate hope in order to prevent a later catastrophe that's what's going on in my mind now superman is the antithesis of that perspective he is hope embodied and ultimately you would imagine that doomsday clock is going to end with the reaffirmation that hope is alive and well within the dc universe and it's all good that's my opinion what i want to talk about is how both of those things 
right, could exist within the same universe. Heroes in Crisis takes place before Doomsday Clock by about a year. However, Wally West is dead. Whatever happens, Heroes in Crisis happens. Doomsday Clock is the reaffirmation of hope. So within one year, you're telling me that we lose hope and then gain it back. Is that the point? Uh, it's confusing. I, I, I have to get going, but I'll make one point here. Um, my issue is that Wally West is killing a Tom King book. It undermines the every, everything that's happening in Doomsday Clock. When that happens, it 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 feels like two authors have their own motivation. And when both are supposed to be canon, it... I don't think they're, I think they are antithetical to one another. And that's okay in a vacuum, in a sense of like one author is telling a story and another author is telling a story. But the, the linchpin here is Wally West. And when both writers have a different purpose for a narrative purpose for the character, it, it's friction. And it works in, in Jeff's vision. I don't think it works in King's vision. But with that said, I gotta go. So bye. <laughs> Oh, hey, oh, okay. Off. See you next week, Philly. <laughs> uh, so, I, I don't know, Sean. I because I think I think how this plays out in on the pages of Tom King's story is going to really affect my final feelings about it. You know, I feel like we have so much to go on with Doomsday Clock right now. We're halfway through, or more than halfway through that event, um, and we're barely even scratching the surface of Heroes in Crisis. So it's hard to say if it's going to make sense um, because I don't know where Heroes in Crisis ends. I, I, I wonder if, if if what you're saying is even true, if the point of Heroes in Crisis is that hope is lost. I think the point of issue one seems as though if, as if hope is lost, but I wonder if the end of that story isn't that. You know, like the end of that story could be that, could could be reinforcing that same um mindset you know that that hope is still uh there because i don't know like i think i get the feeling that that story is ending in a dark place to bring us to a lighter one and i i don't know how those chips are going to fit together at the end at the end of uh, of both storylines it's going to be interesting to see but i i don't think it's impossible to think that by the end of heroes in crisis the takeaway is that hope is still present um despite you know the reality of, of darkness, you know, despite the reality of, of this pain and suffering, but you know, there is still, there is still hope. There is still a path forward. There is still a, um, an ability to get well, you know? And, and, and I think that's going to be the takeaway from that story. I don't think Tom King's going to write a, a story that is about PTSD and not have it have some kind of takeaway that growth is possible, that change is possible. And I wonder if the takeaway there is going to be that that's where they leave it. And then Dr. Manhattan comes and has been altering this thing. And, you know, there is this campaign to change the DC universe as it was. And that the end point of Tom King's story, uh, even if it is hopeful, maybe gets undermined by Dr. Manhattan's actions. You know, and that both of those stories can be canon and sort of exist in their own little vacuum. Because... Dr. Manhattan is sort of uh, acting as a deus ex machina for what the new status quo will be for the DC universe, seemingly, right? That seems to be at least our thought, right? Is that the end of Doomsday Clock will leave us with a new status quo for DC. And I think that's probably true. So I wonder, does it even matter where Tom King's story ends? 
because they have the ability to kind of just clean it up really tightly. Yeah, and that's sort of like where I I come at it just because I I, I again I don't follow this stuff right. So uh, anything that was within uh, Road to Doomsday or anything that was maybe tying into <clears throat> excuse me Heroes in Crisis, I don't necessarily see the connection to begin to like to begin with outside of uh, like rebirth right and if it is sort of aiming to be two different writers with two different kind of end goals i think that'll be unfortunate for some of the larger things that dc is trying to been has been trying to push but um outside of that and just kind of looking at the at them in the in the vacuums that i'm i've been experiencing them in at least um i don't know that they'll necessarily i mean i'm, I'm sure they will in, in some way that perhaps i might not necessarily see just because i will be following it but these stories as self-contained entities i think can work alone and with limited ability to sort of interact with each other if you sort of don't look at it in that in that holistic nature but if you are looking at it as part of that greater whole then I can sort of see the the frustrations in uh, of what these two books are trying to say. Yeah, and I mean, there are probably there there are probably more fans like you than me, uh, in the sense that there are probably more people who will read Heroes in Crisis without having much of the context that I do. But the problem is that DC is a publishing company with a shared universe whether or not the average fan reads everything they put out or not it's is less relevant than just what reality is so to me how can you like pete's right it, it ultimately could be that heroes and heroes in crisis and doomsday clock make sense together that's entirely possible because we're not there yet but for Doomsday Clock to be the thing that takes place a year from where DC is currently at, uh, and for Heroes in Crisis to seem to be a seismic shift in tone from where DC has been, and it's not that you can't do dark things. I love that. I don't have a problem with that. Um, it's just that with Wally West apparently dying, maybe he's not dead. It could just be a shock value thing, but with him maybe, apparently... Or maybe he gets brought back at the end of Doomsday Clock. You know, like, who knows? Sure. Anything could happen. Uh, it just seems weird to me that Jeff Johns had a very specific symbol character for Hope, and that that character is dead as he tells a story that is about that. That's really weird. And even if... It ends up being that here in, uh, with Heroes in Crisis, he gets resurrected, which would still be odd, and he is alive in Doomsday Clock. It just feels weird to do that, to kill him. That seems like a targeted message because you could kill any character. They chose yeah. him. So Right, right. And I, I think to your point, Sean, uh, on this is a point you made earlier, though, about, about um, Heroes in Crisis, I feel like it just speaks to a broader lack of foresight in terms of the publishing like timing of these stories you know i think heroes in crisis didn't need to be happening at the same time as doomsday clock and i understand if they wanted it to happen before doomsday clock then that creates a unique problem but it's like that's not our job 
right? Our job as the fans, the commentators, is to read the books and say what we think about them. And if this isn't working for you, that's a legitimate criticism because ideally, you're the person that they want all of us to be. They want us to read every single fucking book and look for everything and to have it make sense because they're selling us on the idea of it being a shared universe and a tapestry that ideally you want every single piece of. And if you're not only not being rewarded for reading all those books, but being punished, that's not good. You know, and maybe punished is a wrong word, you know, entitlement, all that kind of stuff. I don't mean it in that way, but you see what I'm saying, right? Uh, for the sake of argument that, yeah. that that's – yeah, like this is something that you should have put more thought into. And and whether that's giving us more of the Heroes in Crisis storyline through the DCU proper so that where we're at makes more sense and we're not asking these questions or whether it's, you know, putting these events like making sure that Doomsday Clock started later, you know, like finish Heroes in Crisis and then put out Doomsday Clock. And granted, I, I don't know the business in and outs of all this stuff. There might be logistical reasons why those things don't make sense. But – you're putting yourself in a point where I think you're potentially kneecapping the success of Heroes in Crisis because of other things that are going on and people getting mad less about the content of the book and more about the context of the book. And some people have problems with the content. You have a problem with the content. That's, you know, that's valid. You're not going to like it either way. But the fact that you, as somebody who reads the DC stuff religiously, is having your experience lessened because you do that, that's a problem. And Sean, on that, like... uh Doomsday Clock is supposed to be a year in the future in the current DC continuity, but Heroes in Crisis is taking... Like, uh, what point a year in the future is it? That's, like, concurrent, isn't it? Uh, so, things are things are weird now because Doomsday Clock is not coming out monthly. Uh, it should be nearly done, whereas it's just... I mean, it's, it's well over halfway through, but it, I think it's... We should be about to read the last issue. As opposed to, right? So, yeah, if, if they hadn't taken us on the bi-monthly thing. Yeah, it's going to end in 2019, whereas it should have been ending in 2018. And because of that, it's very hard to say it's a year from X. Because we don't know where, like, is does, did X shift because the book got, got delayed? I don't know. But Heroes in Crisis is, you know, as much as you can say with comic books, I can say is, coming, is happening now. So, so then if there, but like within Doomsday Clock, there isn't like a, it's not necessarily stated that this is a year after like a specific event that happened within, like it, it could be that concurrently Heroes in Crisis happens and then like five years pass and then that's a year from the future of where Doomsday Clock is, right? Uh, I don't, I don't think so because, well, I, I think the, the point he was making, though, is that we're not sure when Doomsday Clock is, right? Like, the original point was that it was supposed to be a year in the future. But to your point, does, does has that needle moved now that the book is taking longer to put out? At New York Comic Con 2017, Jeff Johns said that Doomsday Clock was a year from now in in comics. So whatever whatever that, you know, means. So I think the implication there, then, is that Heroes in Crisis is happening about a year before. If... If I had to assume, if I had to make an assumption, I would say that's probably, probably uh, accurate. Okay. Um, I, I guess that's that's a good place to leave it. Honestly, it's just it's we're at a point where, as for me personally as a fan, I feel confused, 
And that's the last thing that you want to feel for sure. So I'm anticipating both of these books continuation eagerly in Doomsday Clock's case because I love it so much. In Heroes in Crisis case because I want to see where it's going. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm anxious to get answers to questions that I'm not so happy to have. So, but I'm really, really interested in what you guys at home think about both of these books. If you are reading them, uh, please let us know your thoughts about Heroes in Crisis and Doomsday Clock number seven. Um, specifically with, with Heroes in Crisis, I want to know if this book, does it recontextualize DC's current status right now? Does it change the way that you view the books they're publishing or Rebirth at all? I'm very curious to hear what people think about that. Me so, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there are many ways that you guys can reach out to us. Um, we are on Apple Podcasts. We are on SoundCloud. All the other places at the Comics Pals. You can uh, hit us up on uh, social media at the Comics Pals. All over social media. You can write to us at the Comics Pals at gmail dot com with a random question of the week, a buy or sell or your thoughts on what we talked about on this or any other episode of the show. And last but not least, on YouTube, you can like this video, drop us a comment, share with your friends, and subscribe to our channel. All of those things are free to do, and they help us out a lot more than they cost you. And, of course, make sure to hit that notification bell so that you are made aware when we drop our content. So let's do some plugs. Pete. Cool. Thank you guys so much for joining us here on episode 101 of the Comics Pals. I can't believe you came back after last week's Jeopardy uh, fiasco. Uh, <laughs> Jeopardy win. <laughs> uh, but if you guys want to get some more content from me, you can check me out on the video game Pals with Sean, which has a brand new YouTube channel, which I probably plugged at the beginning of this video. But just in case I didn't, there's a link in the description down below, or you can click a little thing somewhere on the screen now or at the end of the video. Uh, so go check that out. Please show us some support on that brand new channel if you're a fan of our video game content. And if you never checked out our video game content, go give it a listen. The Video Game Pals is me and Sean, uh, along with our buddies Andy and Thompson. It's a great little show. Uh, although, oh no, this weekend we'll have one more normal episode before Comic-Con. I forgot. Um, so that should be a great time. Go check it out. Uh, we love doing that show. And if, if you enjoy the show, you'll probably enjoy that one too. And then we also have our uh, Let's Play show Monday through Thursday over on that channel, where last week we played a little bit of Marvel's Spider-Man on the PS4, which was a ton of fun, and Thompson's a terrible superhero. So go check that out. Uh, and then this week, we played through episode one of Life is Strange 2, which I am so excited to talk about tomorrow with my pals. So go check that out. And then uh, if you want to catch me on social media, I'm at loud underscore Pete on Twitter and Instagram. And then I'd like to just take the opportunity to plug uh, a brand new podcast that I'm working on. So I've talked about it the last couple of weeks. I've been working with a website called LootPots.com where I'm doing Nintendo news, reviews, uh, that sort of thing. We have a brand new podcast called The Pots Cast, and I, which I am also the host of. So you can go check that out if you're a Nintendo or a Nintendo fangirl. And um, go, just go show the support. Uh, it's on Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, all the typical podcast you know places except SoundCloud. So um, yeah, if you would mind, wouldn't mind, go give them that debut episode a listen and show me the support. I would really appreciate it. Awesome, Marco. You can find me at Mr. Marco Animoto on Instagram and Twitter. Um, I am going to be posting a. Two images from a short story that we'll be doing with uh, Nate B. Wells. Um, he's an artist. Uh, you can go check him out at Nate B. Wells Art on Instagram. Uh, so some preliminary stuff um, before I release it. And 
You can find Kale at Toto in Toe. That's T-O-T-O-I-N-T-O-W. He also has some of his books out on uh, Selfie.com as well as Comixology from the Deep. Uh, so you can go find that and check that out. Uh, really good stuff. Some kaiju things for those of you who are fans of that. And Phil is at Cyborg Bebop. I mean, you can talk to him. Awesome. If you'd like to, I guess. Uh, and as for me, I am on Twitter and Instagram at Sean Soapbox. Let's talk about the Dark Phoenix trailer. And uh, let's talk about Heroes in Crisis and Doomsday Clock. With that, we're the Comics Pal signing off. Take care, guys. See you next week when we review Venom and go to New York Comic Con. Uh, uh, bye. Bye.